When the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. May our testimonies be as deep and as strong as that of Jacob, who when confronted by one who sought to destroy his faith, declared, I could not be shaken. Good morning, Unshaken Saints, or good afternoon, good evening, good night, whatever time of day or night you might be listening. So glad to have you back. I'm Jared Halverson, and today we are reuniting with an old friend. We get to study the letters of John today, along with Jude, who we haven't met. But it's been a while since we've been able to spend time with John. John the Beloved. John the Revelator that we'll spend the last three weeks of our year on in the book of Revelation, starting next week. John, who gave us the Gospel of John with all of its soaring Christology. When we spent oh, a good chunk of time in his book at the beginning of our year, we came to understand his approach to Jesus is one emphasizing the, the divinity of Christ. Christ himself is a, a proven contrary, where it is, it is God and man, it is divinity and humanity. But John chooses to emphasize the divinity of Jesus. And as we studied then in the Gospel, so much of what John was emphasizing were things that were different than what Matthew, Mark, and Luke did. Those three were the synoptics, those that saw together, synoptic. But John did his own thing and emphasized areas of Christ's ministry that, uh, that he felt were most important. And that should tell us something, especially as we, as we pivot to the three letters that he writes to the general church. Remember we talked in, in the book, uh, or in the letters of Paul, that these were addressed to specific congregations generally. And yet when we got to James and to Peter, these are general epistles for the entire church. And the three letters that we're going to study today, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, those are general epistles as well. And what amazes me is the commonalities, the similarities between what we'll study today in these three small letters and what we studied months ago in, in the gospel, particularly John's point of emphasis. When we got to the Last Supper in John chapter 13, everything seemed to slow down. John flies through the ministry of Jesus, skips a lot of the things that Matthew, Mark, and Luke bring up, focuses more on the Jerusalem ministry, focuses on some incredible uh, miracles, some powerful I am statements. But by the time you get to the Last Supper, it's as if John pulls the emergency brake or puts everything in slow motion and savors every detail he can remember from his final experience with Jesus in that upper room, partaking of the sacrament, having his feet washed by the Savior he loved so deeply, and then to watch the sermon continue after supper as Jesus and his chosen 11, Judas is gone, uh, make their way to the Garden of Gethsemane, and then on through atonement and on to the cross. Now, in the book of John, there are 21 chapters, and the Last Supper and what I call the Sermon After Supper constitutes chapter 13, 14, 15, 16, 17. Think about that. Five out of 21 chapters is just that evening's conversation and the experiences that went along with it. And so for John, the beloved, to in some ways take the entire ministry of Jesus and focus on that night and what he learned from the Savior, the last how extended discourse that he ever heard from the Savior that he loved so much, that was life-changing for John. 
to the point that when he writes these three letters, the same two main points of emphasis will come, come through loud and clear. Let me tell you what they are. That way, as we start into 1 John, you'll be able to know what to look for. Uh, because the two major focal points that Jesus emphasized in those, in those chapters was love and the world. In some ways, we're caught between those two. Or in some ways, maybe a better way to put it is, what do we love? Love is the essence of all that we do. And it's what we love that determines how we act. We are drawn in certain directions. No man can serve two masters, as Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. You'll either hold to the one and despise the other. You'll love one and reject the other. And this idea of our love, where are we placing it? Do we love God with all our heart, mind, and strength and love our neighbor as ourselves? Those are the two great commandments and they focus on where we are aiming our love. Or will we love the world? Uh, we've talked about the choice that we have before us of, of Christ as the covenant father with the church as the covenant mother or Satan as a father that sometimes, unfortunately, we choose by default, usually because we, usually because we choose his wife, the world, and then get stuck with the dad that's been waiting in the wings. Where do we place the affections of our heart? Where our treasures are, so will our heart be also. What do we love? And as far as Jesus was concerned in that Last Supper, a new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another, even as I have loved you. Or greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends, which is exactly what Jesus was about to do. There's something about this final love letter, almost, from, jo from Jesus to John and the other apostles, as he is, as he is concluding his mortal ministry. And he just wants them to know more than anything how much they are loved and how much they will need to overcome the world in order to prove their love for Jesus. Those two realities seem to be seared into the soul of John to the point that when he writes these letters to the church, these three beautiful letters, one with five chapters, uh, two that are just a very one chapter apiece, second and third John are very brief, uh, but that John would focus on those same two elements. Jesus loves me. Jesus loves us all. You need to know that Jesus loves you. And if you're wondering how to prove your love for him, John has some good advice as well. Okay? And part of that will be overcoming the world. That seems to be so much with us. Uh, like I said, keep an eye out for those themes as we go through these books. And I do pray that you'll feel more than just learn, but that you'll feel the love of God shining through these chapters. Are you ready? Well, dive in. Chapter 1 of 1 John, verse 1. And the Joseph Smith translation gives us a new introductory phrase. According to the JST, this letter should begin, Brethren, this is the testimony which we give. And so we're going to see, in some ways, this is how the book of Peter, the letters of Peter ended, that his letters were meant for exhortation and for testimony. Well, how does John begin this? This is a testimony that we're trying to give. And in some ways, this whole first chapter of 1 John is his testimony of Jesus Christ. So, brethren, this is the testimony which we give of, and then we're back to the King James, of that which was from the beginning. Do you remember how John began his gospel? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. He's playing off Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. 
And who is this creator of all things? Well, that's Jesus too, the Word made flesh. I love that here at the beginning of his, of his epistle, his letter, he's beginning with the same focus on the beginning. So, let me bear you my testimony of that which was from the very beginning of all things, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled of the word of life. So again, there's the word of God. There's the word made flesh. Here he is the word of life. For the life was manifested, and we have seen it, and bear witness, and show unto you that eternal life, which was with the Father, and was manifested unto us. This is such a powerful testimony that John is bearing to the saints scattered across, across the Mediterranean. He wants them, and he wants us to know Jesus. And talk about evidence on John's part. These are not... Oh, cunningly devised fables, as Peter said. These are not rumors that have been spreading abroad. As far as John is concerned, did you see how clear he's making his testimony from the start? We've seen, we're eyewitnesses. We've heard, we've handled. Peter talked about that from his experience on the Mount of Transfiguration. We heard the voice of God. We saw Christ in all his glory. And for John, think about the resurrected Christ when he comes and everyone is so shocked and could this could this be is this some spirit and jesus says no come handle me and see for a spirit hath not flesh and blood as you or flesh and bone as you see me have come and touch when jesus appeared to the nephites in 3 nephi 11 it's come and see with your eyes and hear with your ears and touch with your hands i want this to be a sensory experience i want you to know beyond any question who i am and to have an experience seared into the senses that you know who I am. John has had those experiences. He wants us to have them too. And so when he talks about this life, this word of life, and the life was manifested, Christ lived a life so we could see what celestial life looks like even here on earth. He lived the life that he wants all of us to live. Let me act it out for you. Let me make it manifest. And that word, the life was manifest. Okay, He was manifested unto us. That word, manifest or manifested, appears seven times in this one letter. And it does seem to be a, a, a focal point on John's part. I want you to behold what I got to spend three years beholding. Here's my testimony. Live it yourself. Verse 3, that which we have seen and heard, declare we unto you. There's two forms of the, word, of the verb witness. There's one side where we witness something with our eyes, but then we turn around and witness it with our mouths. What we've seen, we now declare. I'm bearing witness of the things that I saw and heard and touched and experienced. Okay? So what we've seen and heard, we declare unto you. And here's why. That ye also may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And these things write we unto you, that your joy may be full. Like we saw last week, so much of what Peter was dealing with was persecution and opposition. And it's no different during this time of John. In fact, there's going to be some schism within the church that he's going to be dealing with, as we'll, as we'll read this letter going forward. And he's trying to give the saints something more firm to hold on to. And there's nothing stronger, no iron rod more durable than the word of Jesus Christ. So hold on to him, the testimony we've borne. We want you to remain in fellowship with us. Don't fall away. 
especially don't fall away from your faith in Jesus Christ. So hold to him that your joy may be full. In verse 5, this then is the message which we have heard of him and declare unto you. And that's what a mouthpiece does, receives and then declares. Here's the message, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Remember back to creation in the beginning, right? The word is speaking creation into existence. And where does he begin? Let there be light. And there was light. And it was good. What kind of light is the Father sending into the world? A being in whom is the light and the life of the world. A being in whom there is no darkness at all. No shadow. And for us to be able to see that light, and by that light to see everything else more clearly, that's the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ in our lives. Now that light should be pointing us in a direction whereby we can extend that light to other people. And so in the next phrase, John says, if we say that we have fellowship with him, and that's what he said in the previous verse, we're bearing this testimony because we want you to have fellowship with us. So if we claim to have fellowship with the light of the world and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanseth us from all sin. We're already starting to see this choice that's placed before us between Zion and Babylon, between Christ and the, the devil, between the church and the world. You get a sense? Between light and darkness is how he's beginning this. And to say that we hold to the light and yet be walking in darkness? No, you're, you're, you're trying to serve two masters and that's not possible. So make up your mind and decide. Will you stay in the light? Will you come unto the light? Will you point other people toward that light? If so, if your eye is single to God's glory, your whole body will be filled with light. And that light is a truth which shineth. It's amazing how often light is used as a metaphor throughout Scripture. And I'm thinking of Jesus when he descends among the Nephites and first declares himself to be the light and life of the world. Oh, their experience in the three days of suffocating darkness. Oh, you'd be crying out for light, that's for sure. Well, the light of the world has come, okay? In verse 8, John says, If we say that we have no sin... So in the previous verses, it was, if we say we have fellowship with him. Oh yeah, I'm a Christian. I'm, I'm on his side. Okay, great. Is, do you mean it? Is it true? In this case, if we say we have no sin, well, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, on the other hand, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then back to the other side, if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. It's interesting to see that back and forth. Do we say we have no sin, or do we admit the fact that we do? Choice is ours. Uh, and in reality, we all know down deep that we are sinners. Paul made that crystal clear repeatedly, right? All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But if we admit that, if we confess our sins to the Lord, he's faithful and he's just to forgive us. And that's an interesting combination. I would have guessed he's faithful and merciful to forgive us. And that's true too. But to see justice as one of the attributes of Christ that, it, that lies behind his forgiveness of all of us, that's amazing. In some ways, it would be unjust of him 
not to forgive us. When he told us in advance, if you'll simply come unto me, confess and forsake, I will remember your sins no more. I'll never bring them up to you again. I will forgive them. Scarlet sin will be as white as snow. I promise you that. There are simply conditions of repentance, as the Book of Mormon says. But if you'll meet those conditions, and here's one of them, confess them, admit that you have them, admit, be humble enough to come and let me know that you need help. And according to my justice, since I promised I would forgive you, I will. It would be unjust of me not to be merciful when I promised you mercy on the conditions of repentance. You see that? To me, it's beautiful he would use that term. God is faithful. God is just. And so we can trust his promises of forgiveness. He's going to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But if we come to him not claiming any need for cleansing, say, oh, no, no, that's for everybody else. You came for them, not for me. I'm just here to thank you on their behalf. Yeah, that's it. Uh, I'm here to follow your example, which I, I've been doing perfectly. Oh, really? So you, what, what you're saying then is you want to accept me as your example and your guide, but you do not want to claim me as your Savior and Redeemer. Is that it? You see, part of the power of our contrition, broken hearts and contrite spirits, that's what we're, the new sacrifice, what we're, trying, what we're being asked to offer to him. It's an admission on our part that we're broken and we need him to come and fix us. That we're not fully grown up in God and this author of our faith now needs to become its finisher. It's the humble confession on our part. I need thee every hour. And I can't clean up my own messes. I can't justify myself, let alone sanctify myself. And so if I will simply admit that and come, the way he puts it at the beginning, if you say, if you think, if it crosses your mind that, no, Jesus came for everybody else and not for you, if you say that you have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And self-deception is such a fascinating problem. It's amazing how hard the mind works to keep us safe. That's a good thing. But if it's trying to keep us safe from a guilty conscience, if it's trying to keep us safe from the realization that we need to change and the only way to do it is to come into Christ, then that's the most dangerous kind of self-deception of all. And so to come to a point where we can be true with ourselves and acknowledge the sin that is within us, one of the dangers of self-deception is we tend to take our flaws and project them onto someone else. For example, when we hurt someone, when we attack someone, when we betray someone, we feel so bad about it, and then the mind kicks in to protect ourselves from those guilty feelings and starts to flood our mind with thoughts of self-deception to justify our actions. I hurt them. Uh, oh no, I, I hate the feeling about that. So hurry, mind, find some justifying reason. Tell me some way that they deserved what I did to them. And all of a sudden, we turn our victim into our attacker. They, they didn't do anything to us, or at least didn't do anything to deserve our mistreatment of them in that moment. And yet we dredge up old hurts and try to come up with some reason to say they deserve the treatment that I gave them. And then, ah, I feel so much better. But do you sense the interesting irony there? That self-deception is taking my sins, 
and projecting them onto the person that I've offended or hurt. And yet, do you sense the counterfeit nature of that act? If that's self-deception, imagine the self-reflection of admitting the sin that is in me, and instead of projecting it onto some innocent victim, I am offering it to the innocent victim himself. I am letting the Savior know through my confession, I did this, and it's on me, but will you take it from me and put it upon yourself? I cannot project it on you. You do not deserve to do this, to suffer for this. But if you will accept my contrition, accept the sacrifice of my broken heart and contrite spirit and the sin that broke my heart and turned my spirit so contrite, then I pray I can be forgiven. And he is faithful and just to forgive us. You get a sense of that? Otherwise, we're not only lying ourselves, there's the self-deception, but as he said at the end there, we make him a liar. And that should jolt us into a realization that we're doing something wrong. How does not admitting my guilt turn Jesus into a liar? I see how it makes me a liar, because I know I'm guilty. But turning him into a liar? Well, again, think about it. What did he say when he came? I'm here to atone for your sins. And then you're like, oh, oh, well, I'm sure everyone who needed that appreciates you. But since I'm off the hook, I haven't done anything wrong. Then what Jesus is following false marching orders. He's, he's come to say, I've, I'm here to take away your sins, and we've turned him into a liar. Like, no, 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 you, don't, you, you must not know me well enough. I don't have any sins for you to remit. No, that turns us both into liars. In some ways, it turns Christ's mission into a colossal waste. And let that jar you into a sense of responsibility toward repentance. There's, to me, something beautiful about Confessing, repenting, accepting the Savior's atoning blood, whereby I can be cleansed of all sin, that makes all that he did for me count. There's something beautiful about... Well, in the book of Jacob, he talks about crying repentance, teaching of the atonement of Jesus Christ, bearing witness of miracles and prophecy and revelation, and doing all that he could for Christ's sake and for the sake of his people. That's interesting. Preaching the gospel is doing something for Christ's sake. Well, yeah, it makes his mission meaningful. If it allows other people to access his atoning grace, then it makes it all the more worthwhile for Jesus, what he did to produce that grace, to allow us to change, okay? Uh, this is chapter 1, and from the very beginning, in this brief chapter, here is John's opening testimony. And it's a testimony of the love of God manifest in Jesus Christ. For God so loved the world, right? And to think of Jesus saying that to Nicodemus, and where is it recorded? Ah, uh, yeah, in the book of John. He remembers it well. In chapter 2, then, let's keep talking about the love of God, shall we? I've borne my testimony. I've seen it. I've felt it. I've heard it. I know it. Let's talk more about the love of God and overcoming the world, since that's what I heard from Jesus at the Last Supper. Chapter 2, verse 1 and 2. My little children, and he'll refer to us in those beloved terms frequently. I'd love to be the little child of John, right? Humbly sitting at his feet, 
teach me all that you can of Jesus. So my little children, these things write I unto you, that ye sin not. And that's the ultimate goal of every prophetic writer. I'm trying to help lead you away from sin, which is leading you toward the Savior. Okay? But when we fall short of it, don't worry, it's not over. He's faithful, he's just, he'll forgive. And that's what he testifies of next. If any man sin, and then the JST adds, and repent, that's absolutely essential. It's not just sin on your own, it's sin and repent. If you'll do that, here's the promise. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And notice it's his righteousness that makes all the difference. Whenever ours falls short, we have an advocate. In other words, we have a defense attorney. And he is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. That's what brings us into that fellowship one with another. You're a Christian? Oh, so am I. Which is basically saying, you're a former sinner that has, been, has repented and come unto Christ? Wow, me too. And we don't have to compare our sins. There's no gradation there. We've all fallen short. We're all in the same sinking ship. But to allow Christ to become the captain of our souls, for him to become our advocate with the Father, wow, you were represented by the same defense attorney I was? That's, we have some serious things in common. And what do we have in common most of all? It's our testimony of Jesus Christ. As our propitiation, that's a word we don't use much, but it simply means some kind of offering to appease someone who's been offended. And to think of us standing before broken law and Christ offering himself as a propitiation. There are so many different models of atonement that are out there. Uh, soteriology, is a, it's a whole ology that you study salvation and the different possibilities of how do you explain the atonement of Jesus Christ. And, and each one looks at it from a different angle, shines the light from a unique perspective in hopes of, of reflecting some truth back to the reader. And none of them can describe the atonement of Jesus in its entirety. To see this particular perspective, this kind of debt payment, reconciliation, propitiation. That is only one of many aspects of the atonement that we need to come to appreciate. In some ways, John is just racking his brain. How do I describe the, what's impossible to describe? We can't wrap our heads around it. But in a legal environment, uh, with all kinds of economics and debtors and trying to pay debts and, and criminals owing debts to society and so on, perhaps that is one analogy Many more will be needed, but perhaps that's one that will help us understand a little of what Jesus did for us. Keep thinking about others. There's many. In verse 3, though, John says, And hereby we do know that we know him. And this kind of phrase, hereby we know, is going to appear nine times in this one brief letter, 1 John. Okay? So keep an eye out for that, too. In some ways, John is trying to offer us, I don't know, some kind of spiritual epistemology. Remember that word? It means, how do we know what we know? Well, this is what John's trying to convey. How do we know certain things, especially the spiritual things? One of, one of those questions might be, how do I know how I'm doing spiritually? In this case, how do I know that I know Christ? Hmm, good question. Well, hereby we do know, if we keep his commandments. And remember where John would have learned that? 
Think back to the book of John where Jesus, in his sermon after supper on the way to Gethsemane, said, If ye love me, keep my commandments. So now John here is saying basically the same thing. So if we do keep commandments, what do we know? Well, we know that I must love him because it's that love that's motivating my obedience. So hereby we know that we know him. We keep his commandments. Now, on the other hand, he that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments, well, <laughs> he's a liar, and the truth is not in him. And that goes along with what John was saying in the previous chapter. Are you telling the truth here? Are you lying? Are you claiming to be on Christ's side, but then not acting like it? In this case, if you love me, keep my commandments. If you know me, keep my commandments. Think about the great intercessory prayer of John chapter 17, where Jesus says that this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the one true God and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. How do we know God? And better yet, how do we know that we know him? Well, the proof's in the pudding, right? Faith without works is dead. In this case, knowledge of God without works is dead. We could say love of God or neighbor without works is dead. And we're trying to breathe life into these things. Enough life for us to recognize that, wow, maybe I really am living in Christ. It's so hard sometimes. Oh, self-deception works in both directions. Sometimes we deceive ourselves into thinking we're better than we are. That's what he was describing earlier. But sometimes we deceive ourselves into thinking we're worse than we are. I, there's no way I, I'm good enough. I can't possibly claim to know God well, look at yourself. The way you live suggests that you know him incredibly well because you're becoming like him. You are proving that knowledge, that intimate relationship with Christ because you're doing the kinds of things that he would do. What manner of man or woman ought you to be, he asked in 3 Nephi. And then he answered, even as I am. So if you'll obey, if you'll be as I am, Rest assured, you know me, and now you know you do. You love me, and you can know that too. That's why John says in the next verse, But whoso keepeth his word, in him verily, so truly, honestly, you've got to know this, verily is the love of God perfected. And remember, to perfect something is to develop it, mature it, help it grow up to its ultimate. There's perfection. So to perfect your love of God, ah, hereby know we that we are in him. He that saith he abideth in him ought himself also so to walk, even as he walked. That's the key to knowing Christ. Follow his example. And the better you know yourself, the better you'll know him and vice versa. To live as he lived, to keep the word and let the word keep you until you are perfect in Christ. That's the goal of it all. Remember the idea of walking in his steps that we saw, that, that beautiful novel from Charles Sheldon, uh, in, in his steps, what would Jesus do? Here you get John's equivalent, to walk even as he walked. In verse 7, Brethren, I write no new commandment unto you, but an old commandment which ye had from the beginning. So let's go back to the beginning once again. And this one is as old as time itself. So nothing new here, okay? Now the JST switches it a little, but ends up saying the same thing. It says, I write a new commandment unto you. So oh, wait a minute, it is new? What do you mean? 
but it is the same commandment which he had from the beginning. You're like, wait a minute, I thought you said it was going to be new. <laughs> well, well, it's new and everlasting, and the new part suggests this reiteration, this reconfirmation, but the everlasting part suggests, oh yeah, it's been around from before the beginning of the world. So let's talk about this commandment, the new, the old, the everlasting, whatever you want to call it. John says, the old commandment is the word which ye have heard from the beginning. Again, a new commandment I write unto you, which thing, and the JST inserts, was of old ordained of God, and then back to the King James, and is true in him and in you, because the darkness is past and the true light now shineth. Now, interesting intro for this commandment. What are we talking about? The old, the new, the everlasting. What do you want us to do? Well, do you remember what Jesus said on the way to Gethsemane? A new commandment I give unto you. And again, it's not really new, but it's to love one another as I have loved you. By this shall all men know, and by this can even you know yourself, that ye are my disciples, that ye have love one to another. Again, you can't read 1 John without having your mind constantly brought back to the Gospel of John and constantly brought back to the things that John learned directly from Jesus. I've always loved studying 2 Nephi 2 and 2 Nephi 9 hand in hand because chapter 9 is where Jacob is teaching the people. But it's so similar to chapter 2 where Lehi is teaching his sons. So in some ways it's like, Jacob, you were a good student. No wonder you're now a good teacher. Here we do the same. And all that John learns from Jesus in the gospel, he is passing forward and teaching the rest of us here. So this new commandment, well, I, I have a feeling I know what it is. It's to love as Jesus loved. After all, if I walk even as he walked, then of course I will love even as he loved. That was Christ's new commandment. And yet, as he quotes Old Testament scripture, what's the most important commandment of them all? Love God with all heart, might, mind, and strength. Second is like unto it. Love neighbor as self. There he's quoting Deuteronomy and quoting Leviticus. These are old laws. Jesus is simply renewing them, saying that that's not part of the law that was fulfilled. That one you must continue fulfilling forever. With that, verse 9, he that saith he is in the light. And we keep seeing this phrase repeated as well. Well, I mean, you say that you don't have any sin. You say that you have fellowship with the Son. Here, you say that you're in the light. Okay, well, talk is cheap. Let's see how it's manifested in deeds. And unfortunately, ah, you're, you're providing proof that you are not what you say. In this case, he that saith he is in the light and hateth his brother, ah, he is in darkness even until now. On the other hand, he that loveth his brother abideth in the light, and there is none occasion of stumbling in him. But he that hateth his brother is in darkness and walketh in darkness, and knoweth not whither he goeth, because that darkness hath blinded his eyes. Interesting here that light and darkness boil down to love and hate. In other words, someone who is full of light is also full of love. Those two seem to be synonymous. Flip it around and hatred, therefore, is darkness. In fact, hatred seems to blind us to the goodness of those all around us, to their redeeming features, 
again, part of that self-deception is assuming that everyone around us is worse than we are and they deserve our ill treatment. Oh no, that's you walking in darkness. Now, what, he's, what John's going to say next then are these little brief messages to a bunch of different audiences. Uh, it reminds me of what President Benson did, did near the end of his life where he wrote, I gave a conference talk to the youth and then another conference talk to the parents, and a conference talk to the home teachers, and a conference talk to the single adult members of the church. And he's got these little target audiences. Next few uh, passages, it's, John's doing the same thing. So he says, I write unto you, little children, and here's your message, because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. So not just for your sake, though it is, it's that too, but for his. It's making his atoning sacrifice count. So little children, hats off to you. Sins are forgiven. Next audience. I write unto you fathers, because ye have known him that is from the beginning. Maybe it's that knowledge that has prepared you to teach your little children so well, so that their sins can be forgiven. So hats off to you fathers and mothers as well. Next audience. I write unto you young men, because ye have overcome the wicked one. So again, so impressed that despite your youth, you have been able to overcome the wickedness of the world all through the atoning sacrifice of Jesus. And then John repeats himself, using a lot of the same commendation he said before. I write unto you little children, because ye have known the Father. I have written unto you fathers, because ye have known him that is from the beginning. I have written unto you young men, because ye are strong, and the word of God abideth in you, and ye have overcome the wicked one. Now, I was wrestling with this passage, trying to make sense of the repetition. Why would he say so much of this a second time? And I don't know all the reasons, but one thing that struck me is most of those phrases are introduced with, I write unto you. I write unto you, I write unto you, this present tense. But at the end, he says, I have written unto you. I have written unto you. And I wonder if this present writing is meant to reaffirm or reconfirm the past previous writing. As if to say, I'm so glad I can say the same things now that I said back then. Uh, having written to you about your goodness, your, your strength to overcome the world. I'm thrilled that I can rewrite the same message and commend you in the same kinds of ways. You're staying firm. As we start to see evidence of some kind of schism among the saints, this particular audience has, has merited John's praise because they're still holding firm to the faith. In verse 15, love not the world. And maybe that's one of the things that is pulling some people away. After all, earlier he said several times, you've overcome the wicked one. Well, the wicked one is married to the world. So make sure you don't love the world like he does. Love not the world. Neither the things that are in the world. And that might be a little more clear. It's worldly stuff that I'm so drawn to. It's what I spend my money on. It's where I spend my time and where I give my attention. It's all these worldly things that are pulling me away from the things of God. I've got to make sure my love is centered on the right stuff. Now, John says, if any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Again, you can't serve two masters. You can't love them both. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And then this amazing warning slash promise. I think it's both. And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof. But he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. 
Now, the caution part of that is why would you love something that has such a, an early expiration date? Why would you put all your eggs in a basket that is going to deteriorate and fall apart with the passage of time? No, the world passeth away. So the things of the world pass away. And so why would you put your time and attention in that, in that area? But if that's the caution, what's the promise? What's the reassurance? Again, the world's going to pass away. And the lust thereof. And what a relief to finally be free of all that. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, the things that draw me in wrong directions. And someday that will all go away. Now, all the more reason in this life to overcome the world, to resist those kinds of temptations, to cross myself so that I don't give in to the lust of the eyes or the lust of the flesh or the pride of life. But as so many of us are waiting for better days, in fact, as so many are struggling with sins that tend to be addictive in nature, imagine those lusts that continually pull you back into old habits that are so difficult to break. And to have the, the reassurance that someday the world will pass away. And its worldly pulls and its draws, the, the tugs, those will end as well. There will be no worldly thing for you to lust after. And what a relief that will be. In other words, fight the good fight now. You won't always have to. A day of deliverance will come. And if we can simply come unto Christ and repent of those times we have succumbed to sin, that we have given in to the lusts of the flesh or the eye, we will have trained righteous reflexes. We will have trained ourselves into a repentant response to the point that we have proven our love of God. It's been made manifest. Hereby we know I'm doing his will and repenting every time that I fall short of that. I'm coming unto him. I'm confessing my sins. I'm acknowledging him as savior and redeemer. I'm accepting him as advocate. I'm proclaiming him as propitiation. And in my gratitude for all that God has done in sending me the Son, I've proven that I'm on his side. And eventually when Christ overcomes the world, there will no longer be a world for me to have to overcome. Please, my friends, hold out faithful. Push your way through. Better days are ahead. I love a statement from Brigham Young where he once said, it is possible for a man who loves the world, that's, that's the bad news, it's possible for him to overcome that love. And here's how Brigham suggested we do it. To get knowledge and understanding until he sees things as they really are, then he will not love the world, but he will see it as it is. And I love that promise. Think about all that we're up against. Things and lusts and flesh and eyes and pride. But if we see it for what it is, if we can take the blinders off and look at the world and go, wait a minute, <laughs> this is tinsel town. And that's all it is, is tinsel. Twinkling lights with no real substance, no light of the world. These are passing baubles of, of excitement, but no real depth of joy. And once I see the world for what it is, 
it's not quite so tempting anymore. And that's the point. In verse 18, John then says, little children, and I love it every time he calls me that. It, it that does not feel condescending at all. It feels endearing. And so to my, little, to my fellow little children, here's the message. It is the last time. We won't have to fight forever, okay? It's the last time. And as ye have heard that Antichrist shall come, even now are there many Antichrists, whereby we know that it is the last time. Think back to Paul's warning to the Thessalonians about the falling away. Think about Christ's warning in Matthew 24. Yeah, John was there, sitting there on the Mount of Olives, hearing it all, when Jesus warned about false prophets and false teachers, and yes, false Christs. So here's John saying, oh yeah, there's antichrists aplenty. They're all around us. This is the source of some of that schism he's trying to, to mend. And it's those antichrists that help us know, oh, it must be go time. It must be these periods of deception of the elect that the Lord talked about that not only precede the destruction of the Jews by the Romans, but precede the destruction of the wicked at the end of the world. They're living in their last time. We're living in ours. And yes, there seem to be antichrists all around us. Now, what do we need to know from about this? Next verse. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would no doubt have continued with us. But they went out, that they might be made manifest that they were not all of us. So there again we get this word manifest. The Lord's trying to make things crystal clear. How do I know the Lord? Well, he's manifest himself, and I'm an eyewitness. How do I know if I'm doing what's right? Well, it's manifest in your love of God and your love of others, and your obedience, which, gives, which makes that love manifest. Well, what about antichrists? How do, I, how do I spot one of those? How are they manifest? And here, it's interesting what John is describing. They left us. That should tell you something. But it should also suggest maybe they were never really us or of us to begin with. Remember earlier in chapter 1, he talks about this fellowship. And how do I know if I'm really in the fellowship? Well, those who left, hmm... They must not really have been of us to begin with. Now here, I, I want to be careful. Uh, because the question is, are those who are, is a used to be a never was? That, let's use those phrases, okay? A used to be is someone who used to be a member of the church, uh, whether in John days or, John's day or in our own. And they're no longer with us, which makes you wonder, what was their faith and testimony and commitment to begin with? Uh, were they a never were. And so their coming into the church was, oh, it was faked, it was counterfeit the whole way. Almost this idea of they were infiltrating us to just kind of pick up some, some intel and figure out how better to attack. They've been anti-Christ the whole time, even though there was a period where they seemed to be pro-Christ. Oh, they're not. Here, they went out from us, but they were not of us. Now, this is an interesting one. I just read a book about uh, those who have fallen away from evangelical faiths. And I was trying to make sense of things from their perspective. How do they deal with faith loss as we're trying to deal with it among those of our own church? And what's interesting about it is this writer, a good Bible-believing Christian, bumps up against verses like this, and it's like, okay, this verse would suggest that the used-to-be's really are never worse. 
uh, they were never really Christian. Because here's the issue. For an evangelical Christian, there's this sense of, have I been born again? Have I been saved? And if I've accepted Jesus in my heart, if I've proclaimed him Lord and Savior, if I've given him my sins, then yes, I'm in. I'm saved by grace alone, through Christ alone, and my faith in him alone. And so I, I'm in. I'm, I'm set. Okay. Now, the challenge, though, is what about people who leave? And this verse would suggest, well, maybe they were saying they've been saved, but no, 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 they definitely weren't. Maybe they were claiming saving grace, but if they'd really felt it, there's no falling back. There's no, there's no leaving that. Once saved, forever saved. But this writer who believes that from a scriptural standpoint had a really hard time believing that from a sociological standpoint. Because he was interviewing all of these people who had left evangelical Christianity. And as he heard their experiences in the church and what brought them to Jesus, these truly were born-again Christians. And it left this scholar scratching his head going, I don't know how to reconcile their experience. And not only their internal state, I was all in. I was, I was a born-again. I was a youth minister. I was a pastor. It was... Read what I wrote back in those days. Read my journal. I wasn't trying to fake it. I wasn't trying to infiltrate Christianity so I could bring it down later on in my life. No, I was all in with no intention of ever leaving. I felt saved and assumed it would be permanent salvation. And so here is this scholar wrestling with per people's personal experience and trying to reconcile it to John's language. And, and he didn't know what to make of it. I, I don't know what to say to John. I don't know what to say to these people. Because, man, they sure, they're as sincere, they were as sincere in their conversion as any current born-again Christian I've ever met. Now, as a Latter-day Saint, where do we come in on all of this? There's actually an interesting verse in section 20 of the Doctrine and Covenants. The Constitution of the Church. It was given there at the beginning of the, of the Restoration. And in it, we talk about some of our beliefs. For example, justification by faith in Jesus Christ. Yes. Sanctification by Jesus Christ. Yes. But then these interesting verses, section 20, th verse 32 to 34. But there is a possibility that man may fall from grace and depart from the living God. Therefore, let the church take heed and pray always, lest they fall into temptation. Yea, and even let those who are sanctified take heed also. And that clarifies things for us. That John must have been talking about specific individuals in the congregation. That, yeah, were the kind that we're describing as infiltrators and then abandoners. As double agents almost. And here they were hunkering down within Christianity, putting on a Christian face and using Christian language and pretending to be of us, but no, they never were. And so when they went out, oh, now all of a sudden it makes total sense that they were against us from the very beginning. Again, that might apply to specific individuals in John's Christian community that he's warning the people about. Those are antichrists, and they were always were even when they seemed to be on our side. But more generally, and that verse in the Doctrine and Covenants would have clarified things for my evangelical scholar friend, it is possible to fall from grace. It's, it's Gregory of Nyssa's perpetual progress that we talked about 
in a previous lesson that yes, we still have agency. And where there's agency, there is the chance to use it poorly and therefore fall from the grace that we had already received. You can be justified. You can even be sanctified. And so even you sanctified, you better take heed too, lest you slip. Remember how Paul said it? Those who think you stand, beware lest you fall. Those who even know they've been sanctified by Christ. My desires are different. I can't rest on those laurels. It's not a permanent fix because that would require a removal of my agency. Okay, so yes, even those who have been sanctified, there is a possibility to fall from grace. So hold on to that grace. Keep moving forward from grace to grace until you receive a fullness. You with me on this? I'm really fascinated by that uh, based on what I've been studying from other perspectives. I'm grateful for this fullness. Now, I'm grateful for the wake-up call it gives me. Uh, that, and also even the patience and oh, understanding it should give me toward people in my own faith community that have left. I don't want to automatically chalk it up to some feigned faith or faked faith from the beginning. No, I, I know them better than that. I had shared spiritual experiences with them. I knew the depth of their faith, that they had testimony. They were of us through and through. But something happened, and they fell from that grace. There's still hope that they can return to it, by the way. So hold on to that. John then teaches us in verse 20, But ye have an unction. And there's a word we never use. It simply means an anointing. Okay, and remember, anointed one means Messiah in Hebrew and Christ in Greek. Remember that priests and kings are both anointed, and we are meant to become kings and queens, priests and priestesses unto God. So yes, we have an unction as well, and it's from the Holy One. It's so fitting that an anointing would come from the anointed Holy One Himself. And what's our anointing? Think about the gift of the Holy Ghost. There's a, a dramatic anointing with a member of the Godhead. There's no oil placed on our heads in that moment. Though you could also think of the temple initiatories, and there's an anointing there that literally takes place. We have been blessed, anointed with gifts of God, with the gift of the Holy Ghost himself. And because of this unction, this, this anointing, John says, ye know all things. That's definitely one of the functions of the Holy Ghost. Now, John says, I have not written unto you because ye know not the truth, but because ye know it, and that no lie is of the truth. So I'm not telling you anything you don't already know. I'm just trying to confirm truths you've already accepted. Okay, so hold on to them. Because here's, here's the problem if you don't. Who is a liar but he that denieth that Jesus is the Christ? He is Antichrist that denieth the Father and the Son. Whosoever denieth the Son, the same hath not the Father. And on the other hand, he that acknowledgeth the Son hath the Father also. Interesting that our battle with the world is a fight over our response to the Father and the Son. Do we accept them or do we deny them? Are we pro-Christ or anti-Christ? Do we know the truth to the point that the truth has made us free? Or are we lying about things as they really are and denying the light of the world that is shining all around us? We should know better than that. 
especially those of us who have received the unction, the anointing of the Holy Ghost. I'm amazed at those who are struggling in their faith. The loss of the Spirit's confirmation, because they no longer confirm that there's a Spirit that could even do any of that to begin with. This denial of the Holy Ghost and chalking up spiritual experience to mere elevated emotion and confirmation bias and self-induced kind of feelings. Now there is a Holy Ghost. And when you have truly felt his influence, you know it's not something that simply rose up within you. Or I have a feeling you'd be <laughs> forcing that feeling all the time because it's so powerful. We can't do it. Even that is a reminder to me that that's an outside influence that is not completely up to me to control. Okay? Truth, error, which are we holding to? John then says in verse 24, Let that therefore abide in you which ye have heard from the beginning. So hold on to what you've been taught. If that which ye have heard from the beginning shall remain in you, and that's the goal, let it stay. Abide was the word he used before. Okay? Let it dwell in you. Let it remain in you. Ye also shall continue, there's another word along the same lines, ye shall continue in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he hath promised us, even eternal life. How's that for something that's going to continue and remain? That kind of life in Christ is eternal. So make your testimony of Christ eternal as well. Start that right now. Abide and remain and continue. These things have I written unto you concerning them that seduce you. Ah, so no wonder John is being so emphatic that you've got to hold on to truth and avoid error. You've got to see through the lies of those Antichrists. They are trying to seduce you, which is such an interesting verb. Some kind of seductive language, flattering words we heard from Sherem or from Korahor, Antichrists in the Book of Mormon. We don't know specifically all the seductive lies that these people are preaching, but evidently some people are falling prey to them. It's those itching ears that Paul talked about. And Oh yeah, you can find teachers after your own lusts to scratch them for you. Whether that's the lusts of the flesh or the lusts of the eyes or the pride of life or the things of the world, everything that John has already warned them about. Oh, you'll find people that will tell you just what you want to hear and whisper sweet nothings in your ear, but they really are nothings. There's no substance there. It's just seduction. In verse 27, he says, But the anointing, there's that back, back to the unction, there's the Spirit, the anointing of the Holy Ghost, which ye have received of him, abideth in you. That's why the Holy Ghost has to be your constant companion. He's got that anointing, has to abide. Never let the oil evaporate. Okay, Keep adding it. Keep anointing. And ye need not that any man teach you, because you know directly from the Spirit, but as the same anointing teacheth you of all things, and is truth, and is no lie, and even as it hath taught you, ye shall abide in him. And now, little children, abide in him, that when he shall appear, we may have confidence, and not be ashamed before him at his coming. If ye know that he is righteous, after all, ye know that everyone that doeth righteousness is born of him. Beautiful ending of this chapter. He bore his witness of Jesus in chapter 1. 
in a way, he's bearing his witness of the Spirit in chapter 2. That's what's going to help you stay strong. It is remembering the spiritual experiences you've had. It's having a relationship, not just with the Lord, but with the Holy Ghost, who will constantly keep you in remembrance of the Lord's goodness and the Lord's truth. This is how we do it, my friends. This is how we navigate the last days with all of its seductive voices and all of its antichrists, which are multiplying around us. This is how we go. No wonder President Nelson said in his very first talk as president of the church, words that I hope we remember, in coming days it will not be possible to survive spiritually without the guiding, directing, comforting, and constant influence of the Holy Ghost. Those are words to live by. What am I doing today to invite the Holy Ghost into my life? What am I choosing to do or choosing not to do to allow the Spirit to remain with me? Elder Bednar once said, and I was grateful for his, his clarity here, that yes, we may not have the Holy Ghost with us 24-7, but you know, we can have him with us a lot more than we typically do. And we can certainly have him with us more than we don't have him with us. So if the presence of the Spirit comes as a surprise to us, hmm, maybe we need to recognize his presence more fully. And maybe we need to live into it and lean into it more. So that what surprises us is not his presence, but rather his absence. Kind of like, whoa, I, just, I felt a loss there. There's, there seems to be darkness. Where, what is its source? And then we avoid those kinds of influences. Okay? With that, we're ready for chapter 3. And this is a magnificent chapter. Because here we are continuing our process of growing up in God. And how do we do that? Well, through love, which overcomes the world. Through love, which is manifest in our obedience to God's commandments. And that overcomes the world. So again, look for those main themes. Chapter 3, verse 1. Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. And that's amazing. To be a son or daughter of heavenly parents. You want to talk about love being made manifest? Being bestowed upon us? He loves us enough to claim us as his own. Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew him not. Here we are back to this analogy of the oh, custody battle, where there are these orphans and two potential sets of parents vying for their choice. In some ways, they both want to adopt the child. So the child gets to adopt the parents. And who do you choose? Will it be Christ and the church? Or will it be Satan and the world? And so here, oh, the world, they don't even know you. At least they don't know who you are destined to grow up to become. They want you to become like them. That's actually growing down. But if you want to grow up, it's growing up in God. Because as his sons or his daughters, do you realize who you were destined to become? Who you were born to be? And they love you enough to readopt you into the family. To remind you of who you really are and who you can really become. Recently, I was on a date with my wife and we were at a restaurant. And a wonderful 
woman came up to us and introduced herself. And maybe she's listening to this. And, and thank you for the chance to get to know you. Your story was amazing. Because she, she came up and just wanted to share it. And, and we were comparing notes on our shared love of Scripture. And she said, you know, I was raised in a really tough situation. And a very abusive, although she didn't get into any details. Uh, but said, by the time I was a senior in high school and I turned 18, I was really close to my seminary teacher. I was just clinging to the gospel because it was the only hope I had. No support at home. But I knew my seminary teacher loved the Lord and he was helping me love the Lord too. Meanwhile, my seminary teacher's wife was my piano teacher. And they were a young couple with little kids. I remember those days as a brand new seminary teacher and I wasn't that much older than my senior students. Uh, just fun relationships and almost like that, their big brother or something. But what blew me away is when this woman said, my seminary teacher and his wife were getting transferred to another city. Uh, far away, they were going to have to pick up and move. And I was devastated because they were like my, my lifeline. Well, they must have sensed that because they invited me to move with them to this new city, new state, and to live with them. And she's like, I mean, I was 18. I, I could be on my own. This was all legal. And in some ways, more than legal, it was the kindest act of acceptance that I could imagine. I mean, as I sat and listened to this story, I thought, what, they basically adopted you? I was blown away by, by their self-sacrifice because I, we, I've got little kids and now I'm basically going to have an 18-year-old daughter that's more like a little sister. Uh, talk about an inconvenience, if you want to put it in those terms. But they never saw it that way. It's like, no, you matter. And talk about manifesting their love for her. I was blown away. She was too. And to be able to accept this incredible offer and leave such a difficult, abusive situation, that's, what, that's the story that came to mind as I was reading verse 1 of, John, of 1 John chapter 3. Oh, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that he would call us as his children. Move out of the world's abusive situations. Leave those pseudo-parents behind and choose a better life, the one we're offering for you. Come, move in, be part of the kingdom of God. That's what missionaries invite every convert to do. It's, that's the gathering of Israel. And it's, it's love. And what a manner of love in that. The next two verses continue to blow the mind. I love chapter 3 of 1 John. And in verse 2 he says, Beloved, and again, you should feel like you are. The, the, that has been made manifest. The, what a manner of love God has. But beloved, now are we the sons of God. You accepted his offer. His generous invitation. You were willing to be adopted into his family. And that's, that's the state right now. Now are ye the sons of God. But this next line, it doth not yet appear what we shall be. Because if it's amazing to be a child of God now, well, children grow up to be more like their parents. So yeah, you think it's amazing to be a child of God? Well, you ain't seen nothing yet. Because as I continue to grow up in God, imagine what he will fashion me into becoming. Here's a little clue for that as far as John is concerned. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him. 
for we shall see him as he is. And every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself, even as he is pure. And that is so profound. Have you ever met somebody truly converted and they just amaze you? It's like that person is, <laughs> has grown up a bit. They're further along the path than I am. And to sit there and think, and this is just happening in this life, in their three score and ten years. Imagine what God will be able to do with them through the eternities. As the finisher of our faith just keeps finishing, keeps polishing us throughout eternity. I have no idea exactly what they'll be. Actually, I take that back. I do have an idea of what they'll be. <laughs> that, that idea is Jesus. He's the life. And so to live that life and know that when he appears, as John says here, we will see him as he is, but we'll also see each other and ourselves as we really are. And what we really are, are children of God. Divinity planted within us, trying to help us emerge from the world's low expectations, from the world's prison of unmet potential. Do you get a sense here? These kinds of verses give me incredible hope. They give me incredible perspective. Uh, I, it's like reading your patriarchal blessing and like flexing in the mirror spiritually, like, whoa, that's who God sees me? as that's how he perceives me that's what he expects me and enables me to become wow i was underestimating myself if that's true of our reflection in the mirror it should also be true of how we perceive all of those around us they're more amazing than i give them credit for as well seeing them in god's true light oh how can i not love my neighbor they're amazing and so to see in my fellow daughters and sons of god God's an embryo. C.S. Lewis taught this, and it's like you'd almost be tempted to worship. Well, keep the worship to, to God himself. But to be amazed by one another. Talk about motivation to be patient with each other and to be patient with ourselves. Talk about motivation to allow the process to unfold and to hold on to the Spirit and allow Him to be our constant companion and continue in Him and abide in Him and let Him dwell in us so He can keep on tinkering, keep on working on us. That's why I love when He says, if you have this hope, and they're talking about a lively hope like Peter talked about, but if you have this hope, what will you do? You will purify yourself. More accurately, you'll allow the Lord to continue purifying you. He will... He's the one working on you, after all. The propitiation, the blood of the Lamb. There's actually an amazing statement from Lorenzo Snow, based on this passage and a few others in the New Testament. Lorenzo Snow was one of the best educated of the early saints. And he and his sister Eliza, oh, talk about a dynamic duo, that brother and sister combination, uh, in terms of their intellectual gifts and even their poetic gifts, it was Lorenzo Snow who gave us that couplet that has been so famous and in some circles infamous <laughs> for those who don't understand it. When Lorenzo Snow said that as man now is, God once was. 
and as God is, man may become. Now, I worry that sometimes we get way more specific about that than Lorenzo Snow ever did. And when we say, as man is, God once was, we're picturing him in our exact circumstance. And I'm, I would, I'm very hesitant to say that. I wouldn't go into detail. I would just allow for progression, even on the part of God, the author of our eternal progression. Okay? That's how Jesus grew up in God. And that's how he's hoping that we will grow up in God as well. But if that's a shorter version of things, if that little couplet is just a hint of, oh, longer poems to come, mind if I share one of those longer poems? Because as Lorenzo is wrestling with this, because this honestly was one of the most life-changing doctrines for him ever. This idea that we can grow up and become more like God. Divine potential. In, uh, in Greek Orthodoxy, they hold on to this. It escaped, that doctrine escaped the apostasy in the East. It was eliminated because of the apostasy in the West, in, in the Latin Church. But in Greek Orthodoxy, they still believe in what they call divinization or apotheosis. Those are technical terms that simply mean our potential to become like God. And that's what's described here. We're his sons and daughters. Of course, we're going to grow up if we let the process unfold. Uh, we'll be like him. We'll see him as he is. What else could John be describing here? This is amazing potential. And the Greek Orthodox sees that. Lorenzo Snow saw that. In fact, when he received his patriarchal blessing, there was a sense there of his divine potential, and it blew his mind. It's like, how is that even possible? But he kept thinking about it and kept wrestling with it and read verses like this, and light kept exploding upon the mind. He even mentioned to Brigham Young once on their mission in England, these are truths the Spirit keeps revealing to me. Am I right? I haven't heard Joseph teach this. And Brigham was like, I really feel like you are right. But I also think you're right not to share them broadly until Joseph does. Let's not get ahead of the prophet, seer, and revelator of this dispensation. This could be true, but not yet time to spread. So let's be patient. And it was only a matter of time until Joseph Smith received this revelation and revealed it to the church that this is what we have the potential to become. And then it was full green light, full speed ahead for Lorenzo Snow. It's like, yes, I knew that was true. I've known it inside for a long time. And like I said, not just the couplet, but a fuller poem is what came forth. Listen to it. It's amazing. This is called Man's Destiny. And he starts by quoting Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 and 6, which we studied a few months ago. It's the verse that says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. So again, this divine potential. Well, with that in mind, and we'll see hints of 1 John 3 here as well, Lorenzo Snow writes, Dear Brother, and it's Brother Paul he's writing to. But he could also add Brother John because it's their verses together in tandem that he's wrestling with. So, dear brother, hast thou not been unwisely bold, man's destiny to thus unfold, to raise, promote such high desire, such vast ambition thus inspire? You get a sense of what Lorenzo's concerned about? Almost like he's warning Paul, like, ooh, easy, Tiger. I, I don't know, I'm not sure if that was wise of you to 
explain so, so powerfully. Won't this inspire some kind of unrighteous pride, some vain ambition on our part? Like, oh, we're going to usurp the throne of God. And that was never Paul's intent. Neither was it John's. And he's the one that Lorenzo quotes next. For John declares, when Christ we see, like unto him we'll try to be. And he who has this hope within will purify himself from sin. You see how he just took the verses we just studied in 1 John 3 and turned them into poetry? And then he goes on with his question. It's like, I'm wrestling with you, Paul. I'm wrestling with you, John. Was it wise to let us know our grand potential? Well, if it purifies us from sin, if it gives us that hope and that motivation, then yeah, maybe it was wise. So he goes on. Who keep this object grand in view to folly, sin, will bid adieu nor wallow in the mire anew. And that's that purification process that we're after. If that's the potential, I want to grow toward it. And to do so, I have to bid adieu to sin. I have to kiss goodbye. Nor ever seek to carve his name high on the shaft of worldly fame, but here his ultimatum trace, the head of all his spirit race. That's what we're aiming toward. This is our ultimatum, to grow up and become like God. That's so far beyond worldly fame. It's so far beyond worldly pride and lust of flesh and lust of eyes. It's No, my eyes are on something far more celestial. Lorenzo then goes on. As well, what taught by you, dear Paul, though much amazed we see it all, our Father, God, has opened our eyes, or opened our eyes, we would say. We cannot view it otherwise. It's like I, once you see it, you can't unsee it. Once you read verses like Philippians 2, once you read verses like 1 John 3, oh, it's opened my eyes to see who I really am and who everyone else around me really is as well. It's amazing, Lorenzo says. Well, the boy, like to his father grown, has but attained unto his own. To grow to sire from state of son is not against nature's course to run. A son of God, like God-to-be, would not be robbing deity. And he who has this hope within will purify himself from sin. So what does Lorenzo conclude as a result of this rumination? Just realizing, wow, this, this is all true. What John said, what Paul said, that our divine potential. So this is what he admits. Going from caution at the beginning, like, oh, Paul, I'm not sure if you should have said that, to... Okay, John, I'm glad you did. His last four lines, You're right, St. John, supremely right. Whoever essays to climb this height will cleanse himself of sin entire, or else were needless to aspire. Oh, Lorenzo, you're almost as good as your sister. I mean, Eliza was the, the poet laureate of the Restoration. But Lorenzo here, helping us understand what Paul and now John are giving us insight into, the potential of each of us to grow from grace to grace until we receive a fullness. It's awe-inspiring. In fact, it's act-inspiring. Actions toward purification, toward justification and sanctification, toward repentance and confession and coming unto Christ. What motivation 
It motivated Lorenzo Snow to become one of the holiest men of this dispensation. With that then, are you ready to move forward? Ah, I just want to sit and ponder this. Feel free to pause and do so. But in verse 4, John continues, Whosoever committeth sin, and that's what's getting in the way of this kind of eternal progression, whosoever committeth sin transgresseth also the law. For sin is the transgression of the law. There he defines it for us. And ye know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him is no sin. Whosoever abideth in him sinneth not. Whosoever sinneth hath not seen him, neither known him. Or as the JST puts it, whosoever continueth in sin hath not seen him, neither known him. And I'm grateful for that clarification. It's not what we've done, but what we're continuing to do. It's not where we've been, it's where we're going. And if I've made those mistakes, that's okay, come and confess. Acknowledge them, that you did something wrong, and you want to start doing things right. And the Lord is your advocate with the Father. Okay? By the way, that word advocate, I forgot to tell you, the Greek of that is parakletos. It's where we get the English word paraclete, which we always use to describe the Spirit as our comforter. Interesting then, Christ as our advocate is a second comforter. It's going to be okay. You can be forgiven. Just don't continue in sin. Because that suggests that you don't really know me. Or at least don't know all of me. That it is both my mercy and my justice that is inviting you to come home. With that then, verse 7, back to the little children. That's you and me. Little children, let no man deceive you especially not those seducing antichrists I warned you about before. Let no man deceive you. He that doeth righteousness is righteous, even as he is righteous. That's growing up in him, becoming like him, being pure even as he is pure. On the flip side, he that committeth sin, or JST, continueth in sin. It's not the act, it's the trend that's the problem. Okay. So if you continue in sin, he's of the devil. For the devil sinneth from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested, there's that word again, that he might destroy the works of the devil. So let's make this as clear as possible as far as the choice is concerned. What do you want? Do you want righteousness or do you want wickedness? Do you want God or the devil? Do you want the church or do you want the world? Do you want immortality and eternal life? Or, well, it's opposite. Think about this in terms of Moses 139. God's work and glory, what he does and what he is, is to bring to pass our immortality and eternal life. But if that's the Lord's way, what's the devil's way? Does he have a work and glory? Well, is it to bring to pass the immorality and eternal death of man? I think that's a pretty good way to describe it. If God is working for us and Satan is working against us, then I guess I get to cast the, the tiebreaker. And whose side will I choose to align myself with? John's trying to make this choice crystal clear, which, by the way, will be the overarching project of the book of Revelation. Let's make the choice as clear as we can. We'll talk more about that next week. Then he says, verse 9, Whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin. And again, brace yourself, it's like, what? I, I have, I must not be born of God. I must be, be faking things. I've not yet been saved. No, calm down. There's a JST here too. There's a lot of JST here because the King James makes it way too stark. You just can't commit sin. 
We're talking flawlessness. No, JST, the warning is not those who commit sin, it's those who continue in sin. And he'll keep bringing that up, okay? So let's reread. Whosoever is born of God doth not continue in sin. We repent as quickly as we can. We get back on the covenant path, okay? We come to our senses. That's born of God. That's wanting to purify ourselves even as he is pure. For his seed remaineth in him, or JST, for the Spirit of God remaineth in him. That's our anointing after all. And he cannot sin, or JST, he cannot continue in sin because he is born of God, or JST, having received that Holy Spirit of promise. So in this, the children of God are manifest, and the children of the devil. Whosoever doeth not righteousness is not of God, neither he that loveth not his brother. So I know there was a lot of back and forth between King James and JST, but the main differences are, it's not absolute flawlessness from this point forward, but rather it's living into the principles of repentance and always returning to God whenever we stray. It's a sense of, how, what, how are you manifesting yourself? Are you giving proof that you really have chosen Christ in the church as your adopted parents? Or are you making it clear, despite whatever protestations to the contrary, that no, actually I'm starting to see some family resemblance toward the other side. Because those worldly things, uh, they do seem to be branding you as a worldly one. That's the family you've been chosen, that you've been choosing. It's interesting because the very end there when he says, how was it made manifest, children of God versus children of the devil? He boiled it down to two things. Here's righteousness of God, but also here's loving your brother. Ah, do you sense the two great commandments? If I love God, the first one, the vertical one, then that's manifest in obedience, in righteousness. But also, do I love my neighbor, the second great commandment, the horizontal one? Am I taking up the cross daily with my vertical discipleship and my horizontal help? That's what, that's what makes it clear whose side we're on. Then verse 11, For this is the message that ye heard from the beginning. So again, none of this is new. This is, well, new and everlasting. That we should love one another. That was the new commandment Jesus gave us all. As well as the old commandment that uh, we should have known from as early as Eden. In fact, that's where he goes next. Not as Cain. So yeah, let's go back as far as we can to see the first example of someone not loving someone else. And that's Cain, who was not his brother's keeper, even though he was born to be. So don't be as Cain. Don't be like that, who was of that wicked one and slew his brother. And wherefore slew he him? Because his own works were evil and his brother's righteous. It was that comparison that just killed him and led him to kill his brother. And then John's advice for us, marvel not, my brethren, if the world hate you. Hmm. The world then becomes the personification of Cain here, and the righteous become the personification of Abel. And to see that sibling rivalry, no wonder Cain hated Abel. No wonder the world hates you. It shouldn't come as a surprise to us. It's like Peter's words, don't think it's some strange thing that you're suffering. That's what happens to good people. Here, don't be surprised if you're hated, opposed, persecuted. 
you're living a good life. And that, in some ways, breaks the world's spell. It proves to other people that you, you can resist it. You can overcome it. You don't have to surrender to the seduction of the wicked world around you. And the world hates that. He, the world wants to be your default position. And there's no escaping it. So you might as well give in. And the righteous say, oh no. There's ways to get through that. He then says in verse 14, we know that we have passed from death unto life. And how do we know that? Well, because we love the brethren. It's death that blinds us to their goodness. It's death that leads to their death at our Cain-like hands, right? But to have passed from death to life, to pass from hate to love, that's what's happening to these Christians. John says, He that loveth not his brother abideth in death. Whosoever hateth his brother is a murderer. We're back to Cain here. And ye know that no murderer hath eternal life abiding in him. Talk about stark. Love is life. Hatred is death. And lacking love, therefore lacking life, puts you in Cain's camp. That's company I don't want to keep. Then in verse 16, Hereby perceive we the love of God. Or JST, the love of Christ. So there are signs of God's love all around us. Signs that Christ loves us as well. The question is, do we perceive them? Well, hereby we can. Hereby perceive we the love of Christ because he laid down his life for us. Remember that passage from Jesus that John records in the sermon after supper? Greater love hath no man than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. Well, hereby we perceive that love. He did exactly that. Jesus laid down his life for us. But if that's what he did for us, what ought we to do for others? John answers that question too. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. That's how we show our greater love. But even on a much lower level, if it's not to the point of of permanent self-sacrifice, what can we do to manifest our love? What can we do to make sure our neighbors perceive the love of God within us? John's answer, But whoso hath this world's good, and seeth his brother have need, and shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwelleth the love of God in him? My little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, JST, only. So it can be in word, it can be in tongue, but it can't be confined to that. It can't be limited to words alone. How's it supposed to be manifest? In deed and in truth. It's a great phrase. Don't love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. This is just like the faith without works is dead. Oh, your faith is enough to say, oh, be warmed and be fed and be clothed. And then you don't do anything about it? Remember this, James, two weeks ago? That's, that faith is dead because it's not manifest in works. And it will actually leave your poor brother dead as well because you're doing nothing to help preserve their lives. To me, it's fascinating here in John of, I mean, there's a pragmatism here too. There is a, yes, love of God. I'm talking about that constantly. But it has to also be manifest in love of neighbor. And actually doing something that will bless them. Lay down your life if it comes to that. And if it doesn't, lay down your life on a daily basis instead. Giving here and serving there and lifting this person and serving that one. 
make a difference, a real perceivable difference. Otherwise, what have you done? Do you catch the phrase, you've shut up your bowels of compassion? And where's the love of God in that? Now, bowels, I was just talking to my students the other day, because Jesus uses those words in 3 Nephi, uh, about the, my bowels of mercy and bowels of compassion. And I was like, let's be literal. What are your bowels? It's like, my intestines are full of compassion. And it's like, huh? What body part do we use? The heart. But what's amazing, the ancient Hebrews had it better than us. Or they got it more correct than we do. Because it's not that we feel it in our heart. We really do feel things in our guts. And to feel compassion, like yearning down deep in the bowels, where it's like this pit in your stomach, you feel so bad for the person that you're seeing suffering. That's a, that's a gut punch. That's bowels of compassion. And it's those bowels that pull us in the direction of the person in need. I almost can't help myself but give to you to lift where I stand so you can stand alongside me. But to resist that, to shut up the bowels, say, nope, I want to be immune to that feeling of empathy. I want to shut down the gut so I don't feel drawn to help anyone. To empty myself of the milk of human kindness, to refuse the pull of compassion. I've always been struck by the language of Isaiah 58 where he talks about the real fast and what fasting is supposed to look like instead of some kind of oh, self-suffering that we're like, oh, woe is me, I'm so hungry. I hope everybody hears my stomach growl so they see how holy I am. It's like, that's not the fast I've been asking for. What is? Listen to this verse from Isaiah 58 verse 7. Is it not to deal thy bread to the hungry, and that thou bring the poor that are cast out to thy house? How's that for inconveniencing yourself? How's that for showing the love by adopting them in? Okay, it's not just, oh, give it the office, and, and here's the bread, please send it to them. I don't even want to have to see their face. No, it's bringing them into your own house. When thou seest the naked, that thou cover him. And then my favorite line, and that thou hide not thyself from thine own flesh. That's amazing. Who is the poor? It's me. It's my brother or sister. They're no different than I am. They're my own flesh. That's able to my cane. Oh, I don't want to be cane. So how do I offer? How do I provide instead of take? How do I lift instead of put down? How do I see them as one of my own? Well, there's the bowels of compassion. And if you can't feel that, you've done something to shut out and shut up what should be an instinctive feeling. That's the better angels of our nature. So live into it. He then says in verse 19, And hereby we know, there's that phrase again, the constant, this, this Johannine epistemology, if you want to use really fancy language, how do we know anything? Well, John's going to tell us. Hereby we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. And that'd be nice. It's like, no, I, I feel assured of this. My heart is in a good place. I'm, I'm right with God. I know that. I'm not approaching the throne of grace hesitantly. I'm doing it boldly. I know he wants me here. 
And then John says, for if our heart condemn us, ooh, God is greater than our heart and knoweth all things. And then on the other hand, beloved, if our heart condemn us not, then have we confidence toward God. I love that John is doing this. How do I know that I'm living the truth? And his answer, well, are you loving God? Are you loving your neighbor? Well, I think so. Well, how do you know if you are? Are you obeying the commandments? That shows love of God. Well, if your attitude's in the right place anyway. And serving others, that shows your love for them. So are you doing those things? If you are, you, have, you don't have to have any doubt that you're doing the right thing. I've heard this so often from priesthood leaders, and I felt the same when I was a priesthood leader as well, that people coming in for their Temple Recommend interview and having such a hard time answering the last question of, do you consider yourself worthy to enter the Lord's house and participate in Temple ordinances? And there's this hemming and hawing and like, I don't know, I, I think, I'm trying. It's like, you just answered all the questions. There's nothing flagrant keeping you from God's house, and you have faith in Him. So what's the holdup? What's the concern? Are you striving to keep the commandments? Yes. Are you striving to serve your neighbor? Yes. Then you love God and neighbor. Good work. Keep it up. You understand what works can do for your faith as far as confirming you actually have it? This is beautiful. I also want to just give one caution, though. Because on the one hand... Trust your heart, okay? If your heart condemns you, then there's some repentance to do. And you're welcome to do that. Invited to, in fact. If your heart doesn't condemn you, you're okay. And God will say the same thing. In some ways, let's wrestle with this epistemology again. How do I know? In some ways, I would say to someone, show me your budget and your calendar and I'll tell you your priorities. Time is money and money is time and wherever your money and time go, that's probably what you're putting as high priorities in your life. But to see you pay tithing from that money or give fast offerings from that money and, and buy things that will bless others with that money, oh, that, there's evidence that you're using it well. Your priorities, your heart in the right spot and your time you're magnifying this calling, you're raising your children, you're serving in the temple, you're, you're giving time, you're, you're consecrating. Rest assured, you're doing fine. And trust the heart within you. Now this is where I want to give the caution. Because sometimes our heart can be kind of a fickle thing. And I see this constantly in my own BYU students because they get grades. And so much of their grades in my class are self-assessed. And I'm frequently warning them, some of you are too hard on yourselves. Ease up. Grade yourself a little more compassionately in how you're doing in class. In terms of daily scripture study and attention and focus and how hard you're trying to learn what we're, what we're studying. I want you to be the assessor of that. On the other hand, some of you are a little too easy on yourselves. And you're like, I mean, I opened the book and I lit, you know, lit, skimmed a few things and that counts as scripture study, right? So yeah, give myself all, all the points. It's like, yeah, that's, you might be a little too soft. I, I'm always teaching them proving contraries. I'm aiming for the Goldilocks zone with them. And I'm warning them, some of you are too hot and some of you are too cold when it comes to self-assessment. You need to know which side you're on. 
and therefore rejudge yourself, rescore yourself accordingly. In some ways here, John is giving them all the benefit of the doubt, like, hey, your heart is great and God's even higher than your heart, so if your heart condemns or doesn't condemn, trust that. It's passing self-judgment. But what about those that are so hard on self? What about the toxic perfectionists that can hear justice from a mile away but don't think anything merciful ever applies to them? Oh, for you, yeah, maybe you'll need a second heart to, to counter your own. That's actually one of the reasons we go to a bishop to confess. Because a second opinion, especially from a judge in Israel, can let us know if our heart is attuned for whatever reason to a little, to be too hot or, or turned down to be a little too cold. For a bishop to say, you know what, you're too hard on yourself. Trust me, I deal with repentance constantly and you're doing fine. Go to the temple. I'm signing the recommend. You should too. Or others, this would be harder because I don't even know if they'd come in. But for a bishop to say, you know, I'm glad you understand the mercy of God, but I worry you might be presuming upon his grace. That we can't, for your own sake and for his take sin more seriously, okay? This is Alma trying to strike the balance with Corianton and turning up the heat in chapter 39 and then turning it back down in chapter 42. And it's like, son, are you in the Goldilocks zone of how troubled you are for your sins? Will you repent? You know you need to, but you know you can. You with me? Okay. So in this sense of your heart, again, it's nice to have conversation partners that you fully trust and that have your best interests in heart and, and are striving to put their hearts in the right place as well. The, to, to have someone else critique your heart in terms of your own self-critiquing, if that makes sense. John then ends this chapter, verse 22 to 24. Whatsoever we ask, we receive of him. There's the ask and ye shall receive. Seek and ye shall find. Knock, it shall be opened unto you. If you ask it, you'll receive it because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. You've got to hold on to the second half of that verse as you couple it with the first. It's not just a blanket like, hey, you want it? You got it. This is not a blank check. Unless God completely trusts you, if you keep his commandments and do the things that please him, then of course he's going to give you what you're asking for because you're not asking it for yourself. If this is a more used would I be kind of prayer. This is a help me help others. And that, that, that's the kind of blessing or kind of prayer God loves to answer. You become an instrument in his hands. John then says, this is his commandment that we should believe on the name of his son, Jesus Christ. So there's faith. And love one another as he gave us commandment. So there's charity. And if we're seeing faith and charity, well, where's the hope? Keep reading. And he that keepeth his commandments dwelleth in him and he in him. And hereby we know that he abideth in us by the Spirit which he hath given us. And that to me sounds like hope for the constant companionship of the Holy Ghost. The abiding presence of the Spirit of God. There's the ultimate assurance that we're living right. The Holy Ghost is with me. He abides in me and hereby I know. Because a member of the Godhead is with me. It's it's actually an interesting thing because I've, I've pondered this at times in my own experience. 
feeling the spirit and wondering why. As I've wrestled with the natural man within me and overcoming sin and repenting of mistakes and at times feeling the spirit so beautifully strong and knowing, okay, I'm, I'm clean. The Lord has forgiven me and the spirit is here to sweep away the guilt from my heart. But there have been times where I've wondered, am I feeling the Spirit because I'm worthy or because the person I'm trying to serve is worthy? Think about that. Uh, in your teaching, in priesthood blessings, in prayers of faith, in leading others, I think sometimes we can feel the Spirit because it's passing through us to them. This is the sense of a of a priesthood holder, for example, giving a blessing, and are they completely worthy to do so? If they aren't, do they get in the way of God's ability to, to reach the person being blessed? That would be completely unfair to the person receiving the blessing. This, is, this was actually something they wrestled with in early Christian history. It's like, does the priesthood holder have to be perfect, or does his imperfection interfere with ordinances and blessings and so on? And wisely, it was decided, well, that would be completely unfair for the other person. So God must at times be willing to plug his nose and work through someone impure in order to reach someone who is, is pure and deserves those blessings. Otherwise, they're being held hostage to an unworthy priesthood holder. Does that make sense? Now, that's not to absolve the priesthood holder in any way. And that's the point I'm trying to make here, that God is working through you, but in spite of you. Does that make sense? Because I, what I'm worried about here at the end of, of uh, chapter four, or chapter three, excuse me, is, hey, if I have the Holy Ghost, then I know I'm abiding in God. I know I'm good. Well, yes, but not always yes. Because I do believe there are times where you might feel the Spirit because someone else that you're serving deserves to feel the Spirit. But the interesting thing is, once that experience passes and you're no longer giving them the blessing, you're no longer teaching them the lesson, you're no, no longer leading them in whatever it is, and then the Spirit's gone from you. And I think it's meant to make us wonder, oh, was the Spirit meant for them because of their worthiness, not me, because of my lack? And I honestly think the best way to know if, like when these verses apply, hereby I know that I'm doing, all, I'm doing all right because the Spirit abides in me. It's when it's just me. And when I'm alone with God and alone with my heart, and if I can be mindful enough to close out the, the voices of the world and, in, and the voices from within that are reassuring me that, no, it's fine, everybody does it, and I'm rationalizing, and I'm justifying, and I'm self-deceiving. No, if I can sit long enough and be silent long enough, that instead of being the voice that's talking, I can be the being that's listening and hear the Holy Ghost let me know there's still some things you're, you need to be working on. An old slivers of wickedness are starting to work their way to the surface where we can actually feel them again and know there's some repentance yet to be done. To overcome the last vestiges of sin, as Elder Christofferson has called it. 
And when I'm alone with my advocate and my heart becomes immune to justification and rationalization, do I have the Holy Ghost then? What a sweet reassurance. I've been forgiven and I'm clean. And I know that. Again, sometimes a bishop can be the one to help reconfirm that. But don't just take a passing spiritual experience meant for someone else to be some kind of false assurance that you're as good as you need to be. I really hope, by the way, that you're self-aware enough to know if this applies to you. I don't want to trouble those who are already too sensitive to sin. I just want to alert those who might be presuming upon grace. Especially when that grace was meant for someone else you happen to be serving in the moment. Okay, pray for that. Pray for self-reflection and honesty and a heart that will perceive things as, they, as it should. And I have no doubt the Lord will either reassure you or invite you to repent in his perfect way. And with that, we're ready for chapter four. Uh, this is a chapter, every chapter has been beautiful so far. This one is magnificent in its emphasis on love to the point that it defines God in those terms. So verse one, beloved, I'm so grateful he keeps calling us that, right? This is John, the beloved, and he's loved of God and we're loved of him. Beautiful. So beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits whether they are of God. Because many false prophets are gone out into the world. And that's what he's been warning us about. In fact, right on the heels of what, our, what we just discussed in chapter 3, of where's my heart and am I being too hard on myself? Am I being too soft? Am I in or out of the Goldilocks zone? Well, here, try the spirits. Make sure that you know this is God speaking to me instead of my self-deception. There's actually an interesting passage in Doctrine and Covenants, section 46, where the Lord's about to explain the gifts of the Spirit. And in this passage, verse 7, he warns that you'll need these gifts to be able to discern properly, because here's what you're up against. That ye may not be seduced, ooh, same word John used in a previous chapter, that ye may not be seduced by evil spirits, or doctrines of devils, or the commandments of men, for some are of men and others of devils. So, yeah, there's a lot of possible voices going, going through your head. Make sure you're trying the spirits. Measure them up against the standard works, for example, since the standard works are the standard for our works. That's the canon, the measuring stick. That's how I can know I'm not deceiving. Go talk to a bishop. Talk to a trusted person and try those spirits. John then says, hereby know ye, so we're back to his epistemology, how do I know? Hereby know ye the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesseth that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that confesseth not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God. This is that spirit of Antichrist, whereof ye have heard that it should come, and even now already is in the world. Now we're really starting to see the sources of these schisms. There must have been some in this little Johannine community, people who are following John's witness of Jesus Christ and accepting all that he's saying of, of him, and yet others, seducers, antichrists, coming in and saying things like, oh, no, Jesus never really came in the flesh. 
Huh? Was this just stories we told? No, I've, I'm, I'm an eyewitness and I've seen and I've heard and I've touched myself. I know this. Hold on to this. Don't be seduced or led astray by this. And hereby ye can know which are seductive spirits and which are true messengers from God. I love how Mormon puts it in Moroni chapter 7. The Book of Mormon is approaching its end, and again, some epistemology is being conveyed. How do I know? How do I judge? And according to Mormon, I show unto you the way to judge. So here's how to do it. For everything which inviteth to do good and to persuade to believe in Christ is sent forth by the power and gift of Christ. Wherefore ye may know with a perfect knowledge it is of God. Mm, that should give us confidence. Hereby we know. Is it drawing me closer to God and to Christ? Or is it seducing me to leave him? That's an incredible rule of thumb. Does this advice make me more Christ-like? Does it help me divine, live into my divine potential? Does it make me want to purify myself even as he is pure? If not, leave it alone. Now verse 4, Ye are of God, little children, and have overcome them. I mean, you're here. You're reading this letter. You're hearing my voice. So you're on, still on the good side. You're of God. And you've overcome them because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And that's wonderful. You're on the right side. And it's the winning side. In fact, if we go back to the idea of which set of parents are you choosing, he that is with us is greater than, than he that's with them out in the world. Remember when you were a little kid and you were on the playground and you were like, I don't know, somebody's there taunting you and you're trying to push back and you say something like, well, my dad can beat up your dad. Well, that's the equivalent of what's happening in here. Christ is superior to Satan. He is stronger than the adversary. So the kingdom of God will overcome the kingdoms of the world. There's the stone cut out of the mountain. It will knock this statue into pieces and fill the whole earth. So greater is he that is in you than is in the world. They are of the world, therefore speak they of the world. And the world heareth them. But what about us? We are of God. He that knoweth God heareth us. He that is not of God heareth not us. Hereby know we the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. There you go. Whose side are you on? Which side do you talk about? Which side do you spend your time and money on? One of my favorite quotes from my favorite religious sociologist, and yeah, you know you're a, a religion nerd when you have a favorite religious sociologist. Uh, his name is Peter Berger, and he's not a member of our church, but he said once that our realities hang by the thin thread of conversation. Oh, I love that. What's my reality? How do I view the world? Do I have a vertical conversation partner with God or in God? Because that conversation is going to keep me grounded in things as they really are. Uh, what about my horizontal conversation partners? Am I conversing about, re about realities with people who truly know them and truly have eyes to see? Fellow saints that see things clearly and help me maintain my, my spiritual vision as well? Or... Are my conversation partners, those seducing antichrists that are living in darkness and 
and misery loves company, so they want me in there with them. You get a sense there? Are we talking about the world or are we talking about God? And what kind of influence do those conversations have upon us? John then says in verse 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone that loveth is born of God, and knoweth God. He that loveth not, knoweth not God, for God is love. That's the attribute that God himself boils down to. If you were to take a, a branch from the tree of life, as, as well as some fruit from the tree of life, and then somehow distill it to its essence. We're looking for an essential oil from the tree of life. Can you imagine that? Uh, forget eucalyptus or, or lavender or peppermint or whatever kind of essential oil you gravitate to. Imagine the essence of the tree of life, which is the love of God. I love that he doesn't just say God has love, as if it were some outside thing that he participates in on occasion. It's not just that God does love now and then. No, it's what he is. His identity at essence is love. He doesn't have to force himself or flex some muscles or grit his teeth and just try to put up with us. No, at core, that's what he is. That's who he is. He's love. And if you don't know that about him, then you don't know him. I was talking to a student who was having a hard time having, feeling that her prayers were being answered. And I'd never asked this question before, but I asked her, well, what kind of God are you talking to? And she's like, huh? Well, I mean, Heavenly Father. I'm like, yeah, but how do you perceive him? I explained that like back in the olden days, you had to call the operator. And there was some operator that had this switchboard in front of them with all these little holes and these wires. And it's like, okay, this, this hole goes to that phone and this hole goes to that phone. And I'm trying to connect them. And so I'll plug the wire into there, into there, and now you can talk to that person. But when you call the operator, you have to be able to explain who you're, gonna, who you're trying to talk to. And so I asked this student, what kind of God are you picturing? If you were to tell the operator, oh yeah, I've got a prayer I want to send. It's like, oh great, who are you sending it to? Well, God. And you're like, well, describe him. I want to make sure I get it in the right spot. And you describe this vengeful God, this angry deity that doesn't like you, that is mad at the things you've done and doesn't want to bless you because you certainly don't deserve it. Because that was pretty close to the description this student of mine was giving me. And it was so interesting to say, well, in some ways, no wonder you're not connecting. You called the wrong number. You described your intended conversation partner to the operator. And they're sitting there scratching their head going, I know a lot of people like that, but none of them are named God. Well, but if that's who you want to talk to, I just, I'll plug it in over there. Or it's just a matter of, well, I, I, I don't know anyone by that number, I mean, or that description. You can keep talking, I guess, but I don't know how you're ever going to get a response because I, I, I don't know that being. Understand? To me, there's something beautiful about knowing God by knowing love. And whether that's knowing 
whether that's loving God, whether that's loving neighbor, whether that's loving ourselves, it's, it's all bound in together in that, right? First great commandment is love God with heart, might, mind, and strength. Second great commandment, love thy neighbor as thyself, which suggests love of self as well, but in a healthy way, right? It, it's all right here. That's how we know God. God is love. And then John says in verse 9, in this was manifested the love of God toward us. So again, here's love, here's how you know, here's how it's manifested. I'm trying to make this as clear as I can. Because that God sent his only begotten son into the world, that we might live through him. Herein is love. Not that we loved God. That's not the the direction that matters most. But that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Just like he said back in chapter 1. This offering, this gift, and it's a gift of love. Does this sound at all like Jesus speaking to Nicodemus there in the dark? Oh, John must have been a fly on the wall. Must have asked Jesus about it after the fact. Somehow he got the news that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Not to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. John is teaching all of us. We don't have to be Nicodemus sneaking over under cover of darkness. We're getting the same word right here. After which John then says in verse 11, Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. I mean, they were recipients of the love of God just like we are. Oh, but they don't deserve my love. Well, they didn't deserve God's either, but he gave it to them. Oh, and now that I mention it, you didn't deserve God's love either, but you get it also. So yeah, here we are, a bunch of undeserving but incredibly beloved children of God. Yeah, I guess we might as well love one another too. Now, he interjects this, and it seems like it's out of the blue, but there's a reason. No man hath seen God at any time. And there's a period right there in in the King James. It's like, whoa, really? Now, the JST clarifies that for obvious reasons, since Joseph himself knew that that wasn't accurate. I mean, he saw God. So the JST adds, except them who believe. It's only believers that will be able to see God. But I wonder about this in context. Because he's talking about loving God and thereby knowing God. Hmm, thereby seeing God? Do I see God in his love for me? Do I see God in my love for one another? Do I see him in my love for myself? Do I see God's image engraven in my countenance? Do I know him? Do I see him in others? To keep that phrase in context of everything else, I think it really is this power of vision that comes through the power of love. He says, if we love one another, God dwelleth in us, and his love is perfected in us. Hereby know we that we dwell in him, and he in us, because he hath given us of his spirit. Just like he said before. So yeah, there are scriptural references that make it crystal clear that there are those who have seen God. Exodus 33, 11, right? God spoke to Moses face to face, even as a man speaketh unto his friend. Uh, There are other examples of that elsewhere in Scripture and in church history as well. But this kind of seeing God, I think, is, is more grounded in the love of God. And seeing each other through that lens, oh, I want to meet you because you are one of God's beloved. Oh, what, a, what a privilege to meet people that God absolutely adores. And that's all of us. 
Then verse 14, And we have seen and do testify that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. That goes back to the words to Nicodemus too, right? Sent, us, or sent him to, be, to save us, not to condemn us. And as a result of that, whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God, God dwelleth in him, and he in God. And we have known and believed the love that God hath to us. God is love. And he that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God, and God in him. Just like he said before. Imagine that though, fully living that way, dwelling in the love of God. <laughs> that's, the man, that's one of the many mansions that he has gone to prepare for us. A, a labor of love in every sense of the term. We're getting near the end of this chapter, and it's here that in verse 17, John says, Herein is our love made perfect. And he's been talking about perfecting our love. Well, how do we do that? Well, herein is one way. That we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. And that's the ultimate challenge. Think about all three of those three word phrases. As he is, and what's he like? Oh, he's love. He's a perfect love that obeys the Father and, and blesses his neighbor. It's a love that is vertical and horizontal, and it extends infinitely in both directions. That's, that's what he is. So as he is, next three-word phrase, so are we. Mm, well, I've got a lot of growing up to do. But if that's my divine potential, then yes, I will purify myself even as he is pure. And it's pure love that I'm after. The kind of love that balances justice and mercy. The kind of love that has both short-term and long-term in mind. The kind of love that is willing to speak the truth in love. Ah, that's what I'm working towards. Okay, But then the last three-word phrase makes it all the harder. It's one thing to be as he is, so are we. But to do it in this world, ah, that's what I've got to overcome. Because this is a world devoid of that kind of love. It's this kind of pseudo-love that everybody throws around like they know what they're talking about. But agape, charity, the true love of Christ? No, the world seems to talk about love like it's eros, romantic love. Or philia, like it's brotherly love. Storge, like it's just some, there's all these lower forms of love in the Greek. And yet in English, we throw those around and think, oh, I'm loving because I let people do whatever they want. What's more loving than that? You do you and just live into it and I'm not going to stand in your way of anything. Even the self-destructive behaviors that I'm not warning you about. No, in the world... I've talked about this before. To live like mother number one while you're stuck with living with mother number two. To have an outpost of Zion here in Babylon. It's living with the evil stepmother like in every Disney movie. <laughs> but I want to be true to the true mother and true father that I just, I'm not with at this moment. You understand? In the world, but not of the world. I've set my heart on other things. I talk about other things. I aim for other things. I love other things. Then verse 18, speaking of love, 
as we've been doing this entire letter so far, there is no fear in love. But perfect love casteth out fear, because fear hath torment. He that feareth is not made perfect in love. And then this amazing statement, we love him because he first loved us. Take all that together. Love, fear, well, they can't coexist. Understand that from the start. One will always push out the other. It's, it's this fear that makes me not love my neighbor because I'm worried that they're going to do something to me or that they're going to be better than me or they're not going to deserve my love or they're going to take advantage of my love. Oh, forget it all. Just love them. Whether or not they deserve it, no matter what they're going to do with it, just love. That's it. And don't fear offering them that kind of love. Perfect love will cast out that fear. And hopefully that happens before that kind of fear would cast out your love. I remember one of the first times I had to teach a very large institute class, and I was the same age as most of my students. I was overwhelmed with this sense of, oh, what the heck am I doing? Why would they come and listen to me? Uh, I've met some of those people. It's fun. I'll, I'll meet them I'm like, how do we know each other? Because they're like, hey, Brother Halverson, good to see you. And I'm like, okay, you look like my age. Why do we know each other? And like, oh, I was one of your institute students like 25 years ago. And I'm like, wait a minute, that's... I was barely married. I was just starting. I'm like, wait a minute. Were you one of those groups in that BYU stake that they kind of just threw us all together and asked me to come teach? And we we're all just friends on the same level. And we had, we had a blast. It was one of the most incredible teaching experiences of my life. And I remember the first time, though, I didn't know yet it was going to be incredible. I was scared to death. And the thought crossed my mind, perfect love casteth out all fear. And I love these people, even though I don't know them yet. They're fellow saints. They're coming to learn. This is going to be awesome. I remember from the end of section 121 of the Doctrine and Covenants. If your bowels are filled with charity, that's the love John's talking about here, and if virtue is garnishing your thoughts unceasingly, so you're worthy, then your confidence will wax strong in the presence of God. And that's what I was lacking as I was about to go into class. I was lacking confidence. You ever felt that? Going into an assignment or going meeting with people or giving a talk or leading a discussion, whatever it is. And you're, you don't have confidence? Well, I realized from that verse, man, if I can be confident in the presence of God, then why on earth would I be afraid of mere men and women? And what, is it, what does it take to, be, to gain that kind of confidence? Love, there's charity, and worthiness, there's virtue. Am I worthy? Ah, not flawless, but the Spirit is with me. My heart reassures, I'm, you're, you're fine, you're good. Okay, so I... I can have confidence in the Holy Ghost's companionship. And then charity. I love these people. Here comes my confidence. There goes my fear. And honestly, the next time you have to do something that seems intimidating or you're fearful and unconfident about, then make sure you're worthy of the Holy Ghost's comforting companionship and make sure you love people. If you don't know them yet, just ask God how he feels about them. And you can't help but love them. I often do that before a fireside, before strangers. Heavenly Father, how do you feel about these people? Help me feel this way about them too. And there goes, there goes fear. It's awesome. Then the chapter finally ends. Verse 20 and 21. If a man say, I love God, and hateth his brother, well, he's a liar. You can't do both of those. For he that loveth not his brother whom he hath seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? And this commandment have we from him, that he who loveth God love his neighbor also. That's why the second great commandment is like unto the first. It's a natural outgrowth. 
the more I love God, the more I instinctively love my neighbor. Joseph Smith taught that. The, the nearer we approach God, the more we look with compassion upon perishing souls. We want to pick them up and cast their sins behind our back. You can't help it. The love of God infuses us. And so there's something about this order. In the previous passage, the order was, we love him because he first loved us. So first of all, the love was coming down to us. And we can't help but reciprocate that. We, we send our love right back. It's hard not to love the people that most love you, right? But then it gets a little harder. What about loving the people I don't know or the people that don't seem very loving or lovable? That eh, doesn't matter. You're so overfilled and over, you know, spilling over with a vertical love of God that he just keeps pouring back down to you, even though you send as much back his way as you can. No wonder it's going to start spilling out horizontally. And the second great commandment will be a natural outgrowth of the first. And I'm loving my neighbor because I love God. I sense how much he loves them too. It's beautiful. And then one last chapter. I don't want this letter to end. John, why couldn't you give us 21 chapters here like you did in the gospel? Well, there's... You'll need to learn more about love from Jesus in the gospel too. But while we're on this subject, let's talk about love. Let's talk about God. Let's talk about being born of God. Since that's who you're, you're, that's who you were, you're destined to become like. Okay? So chapter 5, verse 1, Whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. That's the process. You've chosen him as your, as your covenant father. And so you're born, spiritually begotten of him. And everyone that loveth him that begat, loveth him also that is begotten of him. And that's an interesting way to, to phrase it. If you love the Father, you love the Son, and vice versa. I mean, after all, they're the ultimate examples of that. So if Christ is the only begotten, and I love him, then who's the, the only begatter? <laughs> well, there's the Father. But also, I think there's a way of seeing this in terms of the, ver the horizontal side, too. Yes, I love the Father because I love the Son, but I also love my neighbor because I, I know the Father loves that neighbor too. My neighbor is a begotten. And if I love the begetter, I need to love the begotten as well. It all comes together. Then verse 2, by this we know, here's more epistemology, that we love the children of God. When we love God and keep his commandments. Just in case we forgot what Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. Just in case you forgot what John has already said in this first letter, let me reiterate it here at the end. So, love God, keep his commandments. That's how you know. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and then the best part, and his commandments are not grievous. Ooh, there's the paradigm shift. I know I love God, because I'm keeping his commandments, but I'm not doing it grudgingly. I'm not doing it with a negative attitude because that would ruin the whole thing. That shows that I don't love God. I'm like, oh, I've got to do what he says. No, it's, I'm so grateful he would reveal to me the best way to live life. He figured it out and then he, he gave us the secret. It's sad that we call them commandments because commandment, the word itself gets a bad rap. And all of a sudden it feels restrictive and a rule and I have to do it. I actually had a student recently come in because she was wrestling with commandments along those lines. And it just feels like I can't really do what I want to do. 
And I said, well, let's, let's just rebrand it. If the word is getting in the way, ask, oh, Alma, for example, when he's talking to Corianton, what would he call a commandment? He calls it living after the nature of happiness. Would you want to do that? <laughs> sin, oh, it's breaking a rule. No, sin is going against the nature of happiness. That's how dad is trying to teach son in Alma 42 and 41. And to me, it's profound to have that paradigm shift once you realize that commandments are a gift because they grant us access to greater joy. Huh, that's it. No wonder section 59 of the Doctrine and Covenants talks about God blessing people with revelation, with blessings, and with commandments, not a few. In fact, more than blessing, he uses the word crown. I want to crown you with these things. A, a, a crown of commandments? Who wants to wear that? That's more like court jester than the king on the throne. I was like, well, no. If you think that, then yeah, the joke's on you. But to understand that it's the commandments that make us king or queen and fill the kingdom with joy, then yeah, I want those commandments in the crown. You understand? So once his commandments are no longer grievous, this is the, the dog with the leash that's hanging. I want to be close to my master, closer than he even expects. Uh, this is when our hearts change and I'm no longer looking for exceptions to the rule or loopholes or ways to get out of things or away from it. It's, no, this is, you mean there's a way I can show God how much I love him? That's another way we could rebrand commandment. It's a rule? No, this is an opportunity to speak God's love language because obedience is a way we show our love of him. Giving us the commandment to begin with was a way he showed his love for us. What's there to grieve over with that? Next, verse 4, For whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world. Here again we see the love of God being tied with overcoming the world. Those two always seem to go hand in hand in this letter because they went hand in hand in Christ's Last Supper and sermons following. This is the victory that overcometh the world, John says. And I love what he chooses as the evidence of that conquest. Even our faith. Do you hear that? It's our faith in Christ that gives us the victory over the world. Because Christ overcame the world. Remember, he that was with us overcomes those that are with them. That's what he says in this next passage. Who is he that overcometh the world? But he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God. After all, Jesus, the Son of God, overcame the world. And if I'm going to do the same, then I need to follow him in his steps. Even as he is, so am I in the world. That shows my belief. And that's what allows me to come off conqueror. Think back to the armor of God and the shield of faith, whereby we can quench every fiery dart of the adversary. And those fiery darts are being sent from the wicked world our way. It's our faith that overcomes. Then verse 6, This is he that came by water and blood, even Jesus Christ. Not by water only, but by water and blood. He's making a point here. I wonder about those who were seducers and deniers and antichrists that creating this schism among the saints, saying, oh no, Jesus never came in the flesh. 
Maybe it's just some kind of spiritual essence. I don't know what it is, but John is pushing back like, no, it's water and blood. Believe me, I saw the blood. I touched the flesh. He lived among us. I'm an eyewitness. And he bears that witness. Here he says, it is the spirit that beareth witness because the spirit is truth. For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. And these three are one. One in spirit, one in purpose, not one in essence, not one in, in personage, but Father, Son, or Word in this case, and Holy Ghost. Oh, they are the ultimate team, and they're bearing the same witness of Christ's divine reality. And then he goes on, and there are three that bear witness in earth. You already met the three in heaven, now here's the three in earth. The spirit, and the water, and the blood. And these three agree in one, just like the three members of the Godhead agree in one as well. Now think about these three elements, okay? Spirit, water, blood. And couple this with a, a fascinating passage in Moses chapter 6, where we are taught about these same three things, and we start to see how they relate to each other in a bunch of different aspects. Moses 6, 59 and 60, And inasmuch as ye were born into the world by water and blood and the Spirit, even so ye must be born again into the kingdom of heaven, of water and of the Spirit, and be cleansed by blood, even the blood of mine only begotten. For by the water ye keep the commandment, by the Spirit ye are justified, and by the blood ye are sanctified. There's those same three elements mentioned over and over and over in this passage in Moses. And think about where they come together. In birth, a mother's water breaks, uh, blood is present in the birth, and the spirit of this infant enters the mortal body, uh, this breath of life. Life has begun. Well, how about when life begins anew in covenant relationship with Christ. To be reborn, ooh, there's baptism, there's the water. There's confirmation, there's the spirit. Oh, and it's all made possible through the atonement, the atonement of Christ. There's the blood. And actually, what made even that possible? Well, think of what Jesus did as far as his atonement is concerned. And Geth Gethsemane and Calvary were characterized by those same three elements. Think of Jesus, think of the blood that Jesus shed in the garden and on the cross. When his side was pierced with the Roman spear, out came blood and water. And what did he say at the end? Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And the veil parts and the body breaks and that part is over. You see these three elements as part of our physical birth, our spiritual rebirth, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ that makes it all possible. These are the elements that come together to bear witness of him. And so what are we offering him by way of witness? Do we partake of the water in the sacrament? Do we acknowledge the blood of Jesus cleansing our stained garments? Do we seek the spirit with all our heart, that's part of our living in Christ as well. From there, John says in verse 9, if we receive the witness of men, well, the witness of God is greater. For this is the witness of God, which he hath testified of his Son. He that believeth on the Son of God hath the witness in himself. 
He that believeth not God hath made him a liar, because he believeth not the record that God gave of his Son. And this is the record, that God hath given to us eternal life. And this life is in his Son. So please quit doubting God by doubting your own salvation. Humbly accept the gift. Reconcile your will to the will of the Father and receive all that God is trying to bestow upon you. I mean, if we mortal men and women can give you this kind of witness, imagine the kind of testimony that can come from above. Turn to God. Be open to that confirming spirit. And you'll know Christ as well as we did, spiritually speaking. Verse 12, he then says, He that hath the Son hath life. I always stop there and go, so yeah, go get a life, will you? That was a, a phrase that people got thrown about in my childhood, where you'd look down on somebody and just kind of spit out this negative, oh, get a life. But I can't help but hear that again in more positive terms based on what John just said. He that hath the Son, ooh, there's life, and there's life eternal. That's the kind of life I want to get. So get Jesus, okay? Come unto him. If you have the Son, you have life. And he that hath not the Son of God, well, sorry, he hath not life. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life, and that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. Yeah, yeah you already know this. I'm just confirming it to you. Maybe any of those who've fallen prey to the seductions of the Antichrists, maybe they're listening in as well. And if so, then please come back to life, life in Christ. Verse 14 then follows, this is the confidence that we have in him. We talked about confidence before and casting out fear because of that love. Well, here's the confidence we have in Christ. That if we ask anything according to his will, and that's going to be made manifest in our love of God and our love of neighbor. Well, if I ask along those lines, then he heareth us. What would keep him, right? He wants to give us those things. He knows what we'll use them for. And if we know that he hear us, whatsoever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we desired of him. There's faith in God's will and faith that we're in tune with it. You remember those three definitions or three requirements of faith that Joseph and Sidney Rigdon taught in the lectures on faith? We talked about this back in Hebrews 11. I know God is, I know what God is like, and I know I'm living in such a way that I can ask for his help in faith. I get that same sense here, that my petition will be granted because God himself will sign it with me. It's my desire is his desire. What else would I want? We're 16 then, if we've been talking about loving God thus far, here's another chance to love your neighbor if any man see his brother sin a sin, which is not unto death, so this is not some kind of oh, unredeemable, unforgivable, unpardonable sin, but no, something else, but I saw that person. I, I've witnessed them falling short. What am I going to do? Am I going to oh, rub it in and call them out and, and shame them publicly? Oh, that doesn't sound very loving. But will I not say a word and just let it slide. And who am I to warn them of the consequences of sin? Oh, well, put it that way. And that doesn't sound very loving either. I need to balance my justice and my mercy just like God does. So what will I do for a brother whom I love that I've seen sin a sin that is not unto death? Here's John's advice. 
he shall ask, and he shall give him life for them that sin not unto death. I mean, I'm trying to grant life to this person. I'm almost a, a mini-advocate on their behalf as well. I'll cry repentance, but in such a loving, understanding way that I'm trying to bring life back to you. I'm giving you life through this call to avoid death. Speaking of death, there is a sin unto death. I do not say that he shall pray for it. After all, all unrighteousness is sin, and there is a sin not unto death. And that's the kind I'm talking about here. In some ways, he's asking us to pray for one another's worthiness and repentance. Like I said before, to cry repentance to one another, but doing so in a gentle and kind and merciful understanding way. To just offer life in Christ and the best possible way to live. Because there are some out there who still consider the commandments grievous. They haven't had that paradigm shift yet. And if we can help that happen for them, for their sake, uh, we're bringing life back to them. Exactly the way the Lord wants us to. And then John ends this first letter. Verse 18 through 21. We know that whosoever is born of God sinneth not. Oh, JST. Continueth not in sin. Yeah, that makes more sense. But he that is begotten of God keepeth himself. Mm, JST. He who is begotten of God and keepeth himself. Okay, back to King James. And that wicked one toucheth him not. Or JST, overcometh him not. I mean, the devil's still going to get after you. He may touch you. He just won't overcome you. Because you're trusting in the Christ who overcame the world. And we know that we are of God. And the whole world lieth in wickedness. And we know that the Son of God is come and hath given us an understanding. That we may know him that is true. And we are in him that is true. Even in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. So, little children, keep yourselves from idols. Amen. <laughs> it's like, wait, what? That's a strange ending. No other sign-off, no other oh, parting salutation. Just uh, behave yourselves, huh? Keep yourselves from idols. It's so understated. It's almost like kind of throw out that last phrase, maybe with a wink and a smile, like, you know there's a lot more to this than that. But what do I have to say in conclusion that I haven't already said all throughout the entire letter? How are you going to keep yourself from idols? Well, come unto Christ. Idols don't love you. They do nothing for you. But Christ has done everything for you because he is love. Based on what John has taught us in these last five chapters, just this first letter, and then we have the second and the third that are so brief. I wish he just kept writing like he did for this first one. But to pause here to sense what he's trying to convey. Do we love God with all our heart, might, mind, and strength? He loves us in all those ways unto infinity. Do we love our neighbor and do we sense how much God loves them too? That would make loving them far easier for us. Do we know that God is love? Because if we know love, then we know God. And we know the love of God that has been made manifest in Jesus. That's the hope of all of this. That's the purpose of the Father sending the Son. So look to Jesus. 
learn of him. Go back and reread the Gospels. Ponder the, the spirit that motivated Jesus in all that he did. And what will you see? You will see love. I don't know if there's any way to, <laughs> to follow 1 John. 2 John is good, but it can't, it can't touch what we've already studied. I'm glad there's a sequel, uh, but I wish John would have given us even more because what he already taught us in his first epistle is love and God is, that's who he is and how he feels about you and how you ought to feel about him and about each other and overcome the world. And there's the proof. That's all the proof you need that you are prioritizing things that truly matter. Well, in this very, very brief second letter, let's talk a little bit more about that. In some ways, just by way of confirmation about your love, mix that with truth because it's truth that overcomes the wickedness of the world and sees through its falsehoods. That's what it means to choose the right set of parents. So you'd be children of the covenant. All these things that he talked about in the first letter. In some ways... Would the Bible still be complete without 2nd and 3rd John? Yeah. There's not a ton of new material here. But in some ways, it's all, and because they're so short, it's almost like we stumbled across some private communication that was never meant for full canonization to the whole Christian world. But the fact we found something, some scrap of stationery from John the Beloved that gave faint echoes of something that he did write in a full-fledged letter to the church. Oh, let's include it in the same, in the same compilation. Let's preserve it. If I, I see Pete scholars who work on the Dead Sea Scrolls, and it's just this tiny fragment of parchment or papyrus from ages ago, and, but every scrap there was a little bit of writing on it. It's like, can we make out a letter? Can we make out a word? Is there a phrase we can start trying to fit the puzzle pieces together? This is a treasure. And to feel that way about 2 John and 3 John, if there's a scrap of paper with his handwriting on it, I want it. Well, let's see what it said. Verse 1, The elder unto the elect lady and her children, whom I love in the truth, and not I only, but also all they that have known the truth, for the truth's sake which dwelleth in us, and shall be with us forever. Grace be with you, mercy and peace, from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth and love. Mm, that's more like the kinds of salutations we learned from, we got used to in Paul. Give them grace, offer them mercy, grant them peace. But what I love is the beginning. Who's he writing to? And who's the one writing? This is the elder. Okay, so this John. Unto the elect lady and her children. Who's that? Is there some woman there? Is this a Priscilla? Is this a Lydia? Is this some, you know, the mother of John Mark? Some of these amazing sister saints that had houses that they turned into house churches. It sounds like the, there's the elect lady. Her children? Any that are there? And is this... Literal children or metaphorical ones? In fact, let's turn the whole thing metaphorical. And I love the symbolism. Because instead of John writing to some woman and her kids, what if the elder here really is our elder brother, namely Jesus Christ? If this is a brief love letter from 
the Savior, unto the elect lady. Now, husbands, love your wives even as Christ loved uh, the church. The elect lady is the church of Jesus Christ. It's the Israel of Jehovah. And who are her children? Hmm, well, if we took Christ's name upon us through ordinances in the church, then we are children of that covenant, spiritually begotten sons and daughters unto them. Blood, water, spirit, all we saw from the previous letter. So imagine this as, to me, this is my favorite way to read this brief letter as if it were a message coming from Jesus to the church that he loves and the children of the covenant that have been begotten in him. With that in mind, of course he's sending grace and mercy and peace. Of course he loves us in the truth. And it is truth and love coming together that he's trying to convey to us. This is Paul's speaking the truth in love. It's a beautiful contrary. Truth sometimes comes across as the justice side of things. Love, of course, comes off the mercy side of things. But those two have to be joined. Otherwise, we'll speak the truth unlovingly. Or we'll pretend to be loving, but shy away from truth. We have to do both. So verse 4, I rejoiced greatly that I found of thy children walking in truth. Oh, and it came as a relief, believe me, but also a source of great rejoicing. I knew what you were up against. The seducers, the antichrist, the schism of people who claimed that Jesus had not come in the flesh. No, you are there holding firm, walking in truth, and I couldn't be happier. I rejoice. Any of you who are holding firm to the iron rod, despite the fact that your loved ones have, have strayed, please know that the Lord rejoices over you. He holds out hope for your loved one too, by the way. He'll rejoice in them as they return. And prodigals typically do. But this rejoicing that you're walking in truth, my hat's off to all of you who are holding firm to the end. He then says, as we have received the commandment from the Father. That's what you're walking according to. And now I beseech thee, lady, not as though I wrote a new commandment unto thee, but that which we had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk after his commandments. This is the commandment, that as ye have heard from the beginning, ye should walk in it. Sound familiar from the first letter? In the beginning, how he started the first letter, how he started the gospel. To obey, to walk after the commandments, and that's evidence that you love God and love your neighbor. It's all right here. And this is, this is nothing new. It's been here from the beginning, so this is an everlasting covenant, though it's been renewed in these days. A new and everlasting covenant to love as the Savior loves. That's what we signed up for. Then verse 7. For many deceivers are entered into the world, who confess not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh. Is this sounding familiar from his first letter? Who are these deceivers? Well, they're the seducers he mentioned before. As he puts it here, this is a deceiver and an antichrist. Oh, and there's the title he used in the first letter as well. So, what's his advice? Look to yourselves, that we lose not those things which we have wrought, but that we receive a full reward. And in some ways, this is the reward of a missionary. Oh, the joy that they feel in the life of a convert. But to think of that compared to the sorrow they feel when that convert falls away. Is that 
seem to rob them of some of their reward. And I don't mean some kind of like payment they get bonus points in heaven for people they converted. No, the, the reward of their joy. And what, this is the reward of parents. Parents rejoicing in their children's faithfulness. We're going to see more of that in these two letters in just a moment. But think about the rewards that the Lord is trying to offer his children for sharing the gospel, for embracing the gospel, for living the gospel. But we've got to keep on living it. Okay? So beware of those deceivers. Overcome those antichrists. Hold out faithful to the end. In verse 9, Whosoever transgresseth and abideth not in the doctrine of Christ hath not God. And those are the people he's warning them about and inviting to return. If you'll just come, hold to the doctrine of Christ. It includes faith, which you had at one point, but you've lost. It includes repentance, which means you can still return. It includes baptism, where you supposedly laid the old man of sin to, into the grave. You weren't supposed to dig them up again. No, that's a zombie I don't want to be haunted by. Instead, what am I seeking? Well, the doctrine of Christ includes the Holy Ghost. And if he can be my constant companion, then yes, I will abide in God. So I love that he's emphasizing the doctrine of Christ here. He reemphasizes it in the next verse. He that abideth in the doctrine of Christ, he hath both the Father and the Son. If there come any unto you and bring not this doctrine, receive him not into your house, neither bid him God's speed. For he that biddeth him God's speed is partaker of his evil deeds. There really is some concern on John's part about those seducers, those deceivers, those antichrists that are pulling people away from the true faith, that he delivered them, that are standing in the way of the doctrine of Christ. To this elect lady and her children, church members, John is telling them to beware. Not to wish them Godspeed and good luck on your journey and, and hope much success to your endeavors. It's like, no, 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 no. You don't want to give those well wishes. This is the enemy team. So he says in conclusion, having many things to write unto you, I would not write with paper and ink, but I trust to come unto you and speak face to face, that our joy may be full. The children of thy elect sister greet thee. Amen. So yeah, you're not the only elect woman out there. There are branches of the church scattered across the Mediterranean. And these saints salute you just as you would salute them. I wish we could all be together. Can, can we have, hold a general conference? <laughs> Is there some way to gather the saints together under one roof so that we can see each other face to face? There'd be a fullness of joy. I don't know about you, but when I get to go to places like General Conference or State Conference and just see people I haven't seen in a while, it's like Zone Conference in the mission field. It's like, yes, old companions and people I served alongside. And what sociality there existed. There's something beautiful here about John. Very brief letter, 13 verses is all we get. Just enough to remind you, stay strong. Uh, beware of those that they're coming and going and, and do not fall prey to their seductive deceptions. Hold to the faith, keep the doctrine, and man, I wish I could, why am I even writing it all? Well, I guess I have to. That's all I've got. I'm going to write this. I'd rather be penning it or etching it into the fleshy tables of your heart. I hope it's still there. 
but really I'd rather just be there in person so we can rejoice together. Well, put a stamp on it, send it off anyway. Uh, I'm not sure when my next chance to be with these elect ladies and covenant children will be. Well, no wonder there needed to be a third letter. <laughs> Another opportunity for John to say, hey, I'm still thinking about you. Yes, I'd still rather be there in person, but since I haven't been able to come yet, let me send off another. There's so many missionaries coming and going and saints traveling around. And since I can't come directly yet, I'm going to send another letter with one of them. Now, the last one, he addressed it to the elect lady, her covenant children. This one, he has a, a more specific person in mind. Harder to make this one symbolic when his name is right here. But still, consider yourself part of this covenant group and know that this letter is intended for you as well. Third John, verse 1, the elder, elder John, unto the well-beloved Gaius, whom I love in the truth. And there's truth and love, this contrary, spoken together in the same phrase once again. Beloved, I wish above all things that thou mayest prosper and be in health. Those are the external blessings. Even as thy soul prospereth, and those are the internal blessings. For I rejoiced greatly when the brethren came and testified of the truth that is in thee, even as thou walkest in the truth. Oh, and that's a good report. That's the kind of report every return missionary wants to hear from their former investigators or converts. You're still walking in the truth? I wish I knew more about this Gaius. I don't know if he's been suffering and struggling because John's really wishing him good health, but prosperity of soul what he's, is what he's really hoping for. And I'm sure that Gaius is going to get it because he's doing well. He's walking in the truth. And nothing could bring John more joy. In fact, that's what he says in verse 4. And verse 4 is such a beautiful passage. In some ways, this might be the central verse in this whole little letter. It's one that is worthy of memorizing, of, of needle-pointing, and, and embroidering. That's often where I've seen it. I've seen 3 John verse 4. We had it on the wall of our house when I, when I grew up. It's on the, one of the walls in our house currently. And it needs to be etched, engraven into the fleshy tables of the heart. It says simply this, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. No greater joy. You know that, you parents out there, you grandparents out there, whose children are walking in truth, just like Gaius was. I mean, I'm grateful that how specific, and, and this would have been very heartwarming for Gaius to hear or, or to read, but the fact that John steps back and makes things all-inclusive in verse 4, any of my children, quote-unquote. You walk in truth and nothing could make me happier. I know that's true in my own parents' case. As they rejoice in the fact that their children are trying, I feel the same about my own. And speaking to so many of you, no wonder this is such a popular passage, but flip it around and I have sense the reality of its opposite as well. That if we can have no greater joy than to hear that our children walk in truth, then it stands to reason that there's no greater sorrow than to hear that they no longer are. These are the parents of the prodigals who are 
sorrowing, who are wishing things were different. And I've met so many of you. I, I share your sorrow. I empathize with those emotions. I know the broken heart of watching loved ones struggle in their faith. It's why I'm so motivated to keep fighting the good fight and helping people learn to navigate it and giving people hope in the ultimate end of all of this because that sorrow is real. In some ways, it can't help but be that way if the joy is real as well. But think about joy going to sorrow and coming back to an even greater joy than it was before. There's, a, there's creation fall atonement, like we've talked about repeatedly. And if you have joy in your little children as they're walking in truth, and then sorrow for your teenage children or your young adult children or even not so young adult children during their fall stage, well, imagine the second round of verse 4 where you truly have no greater joy. I used to think there was no greater joy than them walking in truth, but I think there is. The greater and greatest of all joys is when children who for a time stopped walking in truth return to the covenant path. Nothing's better than that. So hold out hope for that. Be patient in the process. John then says in verse 5, Beloved, and I'm glad to hear he still loves us, Thou doest faithfully whatsoever thou doest to the brethren and to strangers. So here they are serving both member and non-member alike, which have borne witness of thy charity before the church. So everybody knows how good you've been to them. Whom if thou bring forward on their journey after a godly sort, thou shalt do well. Because that for his name's sake they went forth, taking nothing of the Gentiles, we therefore ought to receive such that we might be fellow helpers to the truth. And that's ultimately what we've been called to do, to help people find the truth, to help them on their journey home. That's it. To join them on that journey for a time and make sure that they are going forward in a godly way. Tripping up over a few things, stumbled or, or a little bit lost, that's okay, I'm here for you. Let's journey together and go in a godly direction. I know where this thing leads. You can do that to brothers and sisters. You can do that to strangers. But that's the kind of charity that is worth being spoken of. In verse 9, he says, I write unto the church, but Diophanes, and like I said, we don't know good Gaius. We really don't know Diophanes, but I don't know if we, if we should. Notice how John describes him. Diophanes, who loveth to have the preeminence among them, so here's somebody that's ambitious and prideful, he receiveth us not. I wonder, is this a local leader that's getting in the way when an apostle is trying to reach the people? I mean, the people know Diophanes. He's just dropping the name, and they didn't know exactly who he's talking about. I wish we did. But he's the one that wants the preeminence. No, listen to me. Don't listen to John. Forget his letter. Send it back. Return to sender. Well, John won't stand for that. He says, wherefore, if I come, I will remember his deeds which he doeth, prating against us with malicious words, and not content therewith. Neither doth he himself receive the brethren, and forbiddeth them that would, and casteth them out of the church. This really is evidence of some kind of schism among the saints. That you have those that follow people like Diophanes, where it's like, nope, and if you're a follower of John, then forget you. I'm going to cast you out of the church. It's like, whoa, who gave you the 
the, the keys of the kingdom. You're casting me out of the church? No, you've kind of already cast yourself out. I'm with John because John's with Jesus. Careful of that, about that seduction and that deception. Antichrist, anyone? But let's get back to the better news. Verse 11, Beloved, follow not that which is evil, and I just described an example of it, but that which is good. And let's get back to a better example of that. He that doeth good is of God, but he that doeth evil hath not seen God. Now Demetrius, ooh, there's somebody worth following. Demetrius hath good report of all men, and of the truth itself. Yea, and we also bear record, and ye know that our record is true. So, you got a choice to make, my friends. Will you be more like Demetrius, or more like Diophanes? Do you want to do what's good, or what's evil? Light, darkness, Zion, Babylon, church, world, same choices as always. Please choose wisely. And then I'll finish. Verse 13 and 14, I had many things to write, but I will not with ink and pen write unto thee. But I trust I shall shortly see thee. And we shall speak face to face. This is exactly how he ended his second letter. Now repeating in the third. I, I just, I want to come. Maybe he's like Moroni. I can get my message across better by speaking than by writing. Though John was an amazing writer. But no, I want to I speak face to face. So he abruptly concludes this brief missive. Peace be to thee. Our friends salute thee. Greet the friends by name. I mean, after all, ultimate truths probably can't be conveyed on paper anyway. And they can hint at things, but really, no, oh, you children, keep walking in truth. And you'll have the Holy Ghost confirming these truths upon you. You'll have it woven into the soul. At least I hope that's happening, you friends of mine. I, I love that John is, calls them that. There's a beautiful personal relationship here. That's really how truth is conveyed to. It has to be experiential. It has to be relational. We need to know each other by name. I love that at the end there. Greet the friends by name. I wish I remembered the names of every person I've ever met and worked with or served or taught or led. I've got so many students right now. I'm grateful that BYU has an app where you can have flashcards made of your students' faces and names. And I go over those flashcards so often, just repeatedly. I'm like, no, I still, I still can't remember that. And I want to, when I see this person in class, I want to be able to call them by name. I want to connect with them in a personal way so that they feel seen and known. God has, doesn't need any flashcards for us. He knows us intimately. But to know each other and to call each other by name there's something beautiful there. It helps them feel the love of God and the love of neighbor. So let's work on that, shall we? Now, the letters of John have come to an end. First John that was so filled with just incredible love and truth. Second John, third John, just brief reminders, little scraps of, of blessings sent their way. Don't forget the love of God. Hold to the truth. Pray that your children will hold to it. Avoid the apostasy around you and people that are trying to pull you away from the faith. Hmm, no better time to let Jude chime in. 
because his message is somewhat similar. There was apostasy and persecution, opposition in his day as well. Jude, again, one brief letter, one chapter is all we get. Who was Jude? Well, most likely, based on his introduction in the first, first verse or two, he was a brother of James. The same, not Peter, James, and John, but James as in the book of James, who was the half-brother of Jesus. So most likely, we're about to hear from another one of Jesus' half-brothers. In the book of Mark, it lists a bunch of Jesus' siblings, half-siblings, and one of them was named James, and another one was named Jude. Remember, James in Hebrew would have been Jacob, and Jude in Hebrew would have been Judah. So there's a Jesus, a little Joshua. There's a James, a little Jacob. There's a Jude, a little Judah. Hmm, those the house of Israel all coming together at home with Mary and Joseph. It's beautiful. But Jude has something important to say. And it won't take much time to, to, to say it. But there's a lot of overlap with Second Peter. I mentioned this last week when we studied Second Peter, that scholars aren't sure who borrowed from whom. And did Peter write first? And then Jude was like, oh yeah, amen, Peter. I got some similar things to say. Or vice versa, Jude leading out and Peter saying, yep, same problem going on here. But to let Jude stand alone for a moment and write his letter to us, so we can receive this message from him. It's a fitting end to these epistles before we turn next week to the book of Revelation, which is the ultimate grand finale of the Bible. But Jude chapter 1, verse 1 and 2, let's hear it from him. Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ, and more than a servant, and brother of James, which means half-brother of Jesus to them that are sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ and called. Mercy unto you and peace and love be multiplied. Here he is writing to those who are truly living the gospel. And I love the description. Sanctified by God, preserved in Jesus Christ. Again, there's something about being clothed in Christ, covered by Christ. Therefore, we are preserved in him. And preserved against what? Well, all those outward influences. All the tugs and pulls and fiery darts of the wicked world. All the seduction and deception and the antichrist that John warned us about. Well, Jude has some similar concerns in mind. And so, yes, we need to be preserved against them. His message, verse 3, Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation. How's that for fellowship, right? We've gone through the fellowship of his suffering. How about the fellowship of his salvation? A common salvation in Christ. Well, when I gave all diligence to write to you about that, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that ye should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. For there are certain men crept in unawares, who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men, turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. So that's what they're up against, these ungodly men. To turn grace into lasciviousness sounds a lot like presuming upon grace. It's like, hey, it's all on Jesus' tab, so live however you want. Ooh, careful about that. There's mercy to the, part, to the point of enabling people in their wickedness. Nope, that has to be coupled with justice to keep it going, from going too far. 
We've got to prove this contrary. And these people are far outside the Goldilocks zone. What's interesting is they crept in unawares. These are intruders into the kingdom of God. And you picture people like Korahor saying just enough of what people might believe to then pull them into things they shouldn't believe. Nehor doing similar things in the Book of Mormon. It's like, hey, God created you. Of course he's going to save you. I mean, God is love, right? Didn't you just read that a few pages ago? Of course he's going to love you enough to to put up with whatever mistakes you've made and just cover it with no need to repent on your own and no need to stop doing it. It's, It's all good. Oh, careful about that. Instead, hold to faith without works and it's dead. Hold to faith that is faith unto repentance. Hold to faith that makes you want to live like Christ and be even as he is in this wicked world. That's what we're, that's the challenge. Okay? That's what we're trying to accomplish. And that's the faith we need to be contending for. In fact, earnestly contending. Now, as someone who's trying to fight the good fight of faith myself, I do love that phrase, earnestly contend for the faith. Then again, I know the Book of Mormon well enough to be concerned by that verb contend. Because in 3 Nephi, Jesus said, contentions of the devil. And in three different rounds in 3 Nephi, Jesus condemns the disputation by which good people are trying to arrive at good truth. It's really interesting. So, I mean, what's wrong with it? That they were contending for the faith. And he's like, well, I'm all about the faith, but not about the contention. Made me look at the original and see, is there, or are there other ways to translate this? Most other translations also stick with contend. But the Greek word could also suggest some kind of wrestle. Uh, This is the same idea as as Paul's, I fought the good fight. And, well, is he like going into fisticuffs with other people? Or is it just, this is... It's like, is this a military battle or is this an Olympic Games? Is this a, a race that I'm trying to run? And Paul uses that kind of imagery often as well. Uh, there was a great talk that Sister Sherry Dew gave where she was talking about the gospel and said it was worth the wrestle. And wrestle is a good one because, oh, it's a fight, all right, but it's one that you shake hands afterwards and it's just, I, I, you're trying to push me and I'm trying to push you and we're like wrestling buddies, okay? In a way here, to contend for the faith and to do it earnestly, true faith is worth fighting for. But don't fight other people in a way that permanently turns them away from any chance of returning to the faith themselves. Okay? There's something, we have to be more careful about that. To make sure that prodigal sons don't feel beaten up by the fight of faith that we've been engaged in. We're not contending against them. We're contending against evil. And we're, in the process, contending for the faith without making it a matter of contention. I I hope that makes sense. We've got to be careful with that. Because I've seen... Well, when we talked about in in Peter, Peter's counsel to give a reason to anyone that asketh you, a reason for the hope that is in you. But remember he said to do it with meekness and fear. I've actually had some other people, when I convey the need to do interfaith dialogue in kind ways, in Christian ways, some have pushed back, quoting Jude, 
and saying, no, Jude said to contend for the faith. So yeah, I'm going to fight you over this. I'm going to Bible bash and proof text and and make you feel bad. And I'm going to be disagreeable in our disagreements because I'm supposed to be a fighter. Contend for the faith. And it's like, ooh, well, keep that verse in context with all the others about loving enemies and so on. Okay, we especially need to do that. In verse 5, he then says, I will therefore put you in remembrance. And that's what good teachers and good leaders and good letter writers will always do. Okay, stir you up into remembrance. Though ye once knew this, he admits. So this is not new, but it might need to be renewed just so you can keep it in mind. And here it is. How that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed them that believed not. Wait, why are you reminding me about the Exodus? Well, that's not the only thing I'm trying to remind you of. Here's number two. And the angels which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation, he hath reserved in everlasting chains under darkness unto the judgment of the great day. So that's the second thing he's trying to remind them of. He then gives them a third example in verse 7 through 8. Even as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities about them in like manner, giving themselves over to fornication and going after strange flesh, are set forth for an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Likewise also these filthy dreamers defile the flesh, despise dominion, and speak evil of dignities. Oh, that's what he's been getting at. His bigger concern, like he said earlier, are those ungodly men that are turning grace into lasciviousness. Here, how does he describe them? They're filthy dreamers. They, well, like we saw in the letters of John, they're the ones going after the lusts of the flesh and the lusts of the eyes and the pride of the world. They've totally succumbed to the worldly pressures. And this group is guilty of the same kinds of things. These defiling dreamers, despising dominion, that's an interesting one. They don't want to be told what to do. Was this the the challenge that John had been writing about, about local leaders pushing people out of the church? in order to stand between them and real apostles like John? No, despising dominion. And then the third, speaking evil of dignities? Oh yeah, tearing down those people who are deserving of your respect? Speaking evil of the Lord's anointed, as we might say? That's what the people are up against in Jude's day, and he's warning them about it. In our own day, I sometimes worry about the hyper-individualism of our day. Now, I'm all for individuality, but that's only half the contrary. It's got to be coupled with community. And I'm all for diversity, but it's got to be coupled with unity. Otherwise, it leads to chaos and anarchy and these kinds of problems. Uh, If there's no deference to authority, if there's no respect to one's elders, if there's no sense of we're in this thing together, and so all make compromises with, with others and, and try to get along, then no wonder we're living in this fractious society that we see all around us. And by way of warning, that's why Jude has brought up these three examples. What he's really aiming for is what he said there at the end of verse 8, the problems in his day. But to help them understand what they're dealing with, let's go back to some problems of prior days. And the three he mentions are so interesting. Exodus, What's the problem going on there? All the murmur, murmur, murmur against Moses. When he's the one trying to help, it's still happening. Or what about the angels that kept not their first estate? Ooh, we're talking war in heaven? Yeah. 
How did they do with dignities? No, they fought against the Father and the Son. How did they do, they do with the flesh, even before they had any? <laughs> no, they wanted us to be able to come to earth and do whatever we wanted with no consequences for our sins. Now, no wonder they lost the war in heaven. That was a war worth contending for. That was faith worth contending for. And then the third example, Sodom and Gomorrah, and that's an obvious one. No wonder they're in that place going after the lusts of the flesh, turning grace into lasciviousness, and not only speaking evil of dignities, but doing very, or threatening very undignified things against the men of God that Lot was trying to protect under the cover of his own roof. This is a tricky one, okay? Any mention of Sodom and Gomorrah, there are those that only think of the immorality aspects, and they quote Genesis 19. There are others who only think of the neglect of the poor aspect, the lack of social justice side of things, and there they quote Ezekiel for that. Well, on, in this instance, both of those are true. I'm not trying to pit Ezekiel and, and Genesis against each other. But just in case there's anyone that wants to sweep Genesis under the rug and only emphasize the social injustices of Sodom and Gomorrah, this is a reminder here about the immorality aspect that was present as well. Okay? We need to overcome both. And then he brings in some other interesting examples. Verse 9 and 10, Yet Michael the archangel, when contending with the devil, he disputed about the body of Moses, but durst not bring against him a railing accusation, but said, The Lord rebuke thee. And that's it. Now that's an interesting one because we have no record in Genesis of anything along those lines happening. Or Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. None of the books of Moses talk about Michael the archangel having to come to defend the body of Moses against the devil. And this is actually something that you can find in the Apocrypha. There's an apocryphal book called The Testament of Moses. I mean, if you think about the ascension of Moses at the end of Deuteronomy, you wonder if the devil's like, no, you cannot bring him to heaven. I'd, I'd get to keep his body here. I'm the Lord of this world with all of its sin and, yes, all of its death. And so I get to keep the bodies here. Well, you can picture the Lord going, well, just wait for the resurrection. and You'll lose it all. But in the meantime, I see what you're saying. Most bodies are left on earth when a person dies. But yeah, Moses, I've got some more work for him to do. So, no. In fact, you want to fight about this one? Hey, Michael, archangel, go and take out, take out the devil on this one. Uh, again, we don't know any specifics on this, but it is fascinating that Jude is either referring to the apocryphal testament of Moses or he knows something that we don't have record of. But what the point he's making that's interesting is he didn't rail against the devil. And you'd think, I mean, again, back in light of contending earnestly for the faith, if anybody deserves to contend, it would be the, the archangel. And anyone deserving to be contended against, it's the devil. And yet here, Jude is very kind of, this is a calm description. The archangel didn't go off on the devil. No railing accusations. He just said, the Lord rebuke thee. And then kind of turned his back and Moses is coming with me and I'll leave you with the Lord and, and that's good enough for me. That doesn't sound very contentious. It's, we actually saw this in a previous letter where there was this sense of heaven doesn't speak disrespectfully of hell. 
even though hell is always raging against heaven. That's interesting to me too. Maybe that's heaven leaving the door open if hell ever wants to change its mind. Maybe this is showing kindness to the prodigal in hopes the prodigal will someday come to himself and come back home. Interesting things to ponder. But then in verse 10, he says, But these speak evil of those things which they know not, but what they know naturally as brute beasts, in those things they corrupt themselves. So yeah, you're talking about stuff you don't know. What do you know? Uh, Things I don't want to know. Uh, We often mock what we don't understand, and yet we do understand things that we were never intended to. And who are we listening to? Who are our conversation partners? Are we trying to go the way of the world or come into the kingdom of God? Jude then says in verse 11, Woe unto them. Woe to the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. Woe to the murmurers in the Exodus. Woe to the angels who lost the war in heaven. But woe to anyone who's doing similar things in our day. For they have gone in the way of Cain and ran greedily after the error of Balaam for reward and perished in the gainsaying of Kor, or Korah, as it would be pronounced in the Old Testament. Now, again, he's using three more examples. He did a round of three previously. Here's a new round of three. Cain, we know, to murder and get gain. Is that what you guys are planning? Balaam, remember him and his talking donkey? He's the one that's flirting with, with temptation and trying to serve two masters, both God and the world. I don't want to do anything against God, but hey, maybe he'll change his mind and let me curse his people. Sure, why not? I'll go with, with you because you have so much to offer me. Hmm, is that what people in Jude's day are dealing with as well? And then the third one, the gainsaying of Kor. Korah was the story of these 250 princes that rebelled against Moses and Aaron, saying, why do you have authority? We're just as good as you are. And there were some problems that came as a result. How's that for speaking evil of dignities and despising dominion? Okay, so Jude just keeps bringing in story after story after story from the Old Testament to warn people, you're falling prey to the same stuff. And to them, he says, or of them, he says, these are spots in your feasts of charity when they feast with you, feeding themselves without fear, clouds they are without water, carried about of winds, trees whose fruit withereth without fruit, twice dead, plucked up by the roots, raging waves of the sea, foaming out their own shame, wandering stars to whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. Whew, powerful metaphors. And he's just rapid fire, boom, 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 trying to let them see, do you know who you're like? Here's example after example from the Old Testament. Let's go even non-scriptural. Do you know what you're like in terms of nature? This is some of the language that Peter had used too. Spots and blemishes. Here it's a spot in your feast of charity. There's the agape feast. There's the communion meal that the Christians gathered together to celebrate. And there are people there that should not be. They're evil, ungodly people creeping in unawares, trying to seduce you away from the true faith. Be careful about that. These are clouds that aren't bringing welcome water. These are withered trees, twice dead, plucked up by the roots. I mean, it's interesting analogies. Wandering stars the kind that you would not be wise to set your course by, they're wandering, they're falling, they're going to lead you astray. It's exactly what they're trying to do. So please be aware of it. 
He says in verse 14, and Enoch also. This Jude loves the Old Testament. He knows it like the back of his hand. Here he's invoking the example of Enoch, the seventh from Adam, who prophesied of these, saying, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousands of his saints. How's that for the second coming? In fact, how's that for the return of Enoch's city? Zion from above reuniting with Zion from below. Well, one of the things that's going to happen at that moment, look at the rest of the verse. To execute judgment upon all and to convince all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds, which they have ungodly committed, and of all their hard speeches which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. I mean, how many times do you have to say ungodly before it captures our attention? These ungodly people doing ungodly things, and the ungodly are rejoicing in such ungodliness. No wonder he warned us earlier of the ungodly men that are creeping around unawares. They don't want you to know about their wickedness. In fact, they don't want to know about their own. They don't want to be called out. They'd rather sin in ignorance. Self-deception, like we talked about before. But what will happen at the coming of Christ and the coming of the true Zion? There's no hiding your sins anymore. There's no more justification or rationalization. There's no more self-deception. The light of the world has come and shined it into every corner of darkness to the point that even the ungodly can fully and finally admit their ungodliness. And they'll admit it as such. That was not what God would have had me do. That's what Jacob says in 2 Nephi 9, that they'll all admit to the Lord, your judgments are just. You gave me the chance to repent, but I didn't take it. Therefore, my sins are mine. My transgressions are, remain with me. I never handed them over alongside my broken heart. I'm fascinated by Jude's language here. He is trying to expose the counterfeits of his day. I love his command of the Old Testament. I'm impressed by his analogies. I hope he's painting a clear enough picture that we can choose to repent. And if, we've, uh, if we are guilty of any ungodly deeds, we can wake up to that fact and repent of them now instead of waiting till Zion comes and forces the realization that we're not part of Zion ourselves. With that, he says in verse 16, these, these enemies, these ungodly, are murmurers, complainers, just like we saw in the Exodus, walking after their own lusts, just like we saw in Sodom and Gomorrah, their mouth speaking great swelling words, like we saw in the war in heaven, having men's persons in admiration because of advantage, just like we saw in Korah, just like we saw in Balaam. Oh, people kissing up to others in hopes of climbing the social ladder, of gaining economically or politically, Oh, admiration, advantage. If you're trying to climb those ladders, those ladders are leaning up against the wrong kinds of walls. Oh, ascend the mountain of the Lord instead, and it'll put all of these things in perspective. Jacob's ladder. Oh, that's a better one to climb. There's a stairway to heaven. But then Jude says in verse 17, But beloved, remember ye the words which were spoken before of the apostles, of our Lord Jesus Christ. How that they told you there should be mockers in the last time, 
who should walk after their own ungodly lusts, there's that word again, these be they who separate themselves, sensual, having not the Spirit. And what I love there is that Jude is pointing out the fact that none of this should come as a surprise. We're living in the days prophesied of where there would be, as he puts it here, mockers in the last time. The seducers, the deceivers, Again, go back to Matthew 24. And what did Jesus say? There will be false Christs and false teachers and false prophets. And they will deceive, if it were possible, even the very elect according to the covenant. But what did he say in Matthew 24? But I tell you this beforehand. I need you to know in advance it's going to be this way. So it doesn't catch you off guard. So their loss of faith doesn't cause your loss of faith. Instead, their loss can be your confirmation. It's like, yes, this is exactly how Jesus said it would be. This is the day of mockery, of ungodliness, of apostasy, of people creeping in unawares, of a loss of faith and an increased importance to contend earnestly to preserve it. I hope Jude's original audience took this seriously, but I hope even more that his latter-day audience is doing likewise. Because we live in a day of mockers and ungodly lusts that should also confirm to us the timetable of it all, that the Lord said it would be this way in the last days. Jude then says in 20 and 21, But ye, beloved, building up yourselves on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Ghost. And that's what we need to be doing if we're going to overcome those mockers, if we're going to avoid apostasy, if we're going to contend earnestly for the faith that was delivered to us, then we're going to have to build ourselves on that faith. There's a rock that wise men and women will build upon. Okay? Pray for the Holy Ghost. He will keep you firm. He will assure you, whereby ye know that you're on the right path. Right? And then he says, by way of invitation and encouragement, keep yourselves in the love of God looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. That's really what's going to help us stay grounded and unshaken. It'll be prayer. It'll be the Holy Ghost. It'll be the love of God. And remember, the love of God is made manifest by giving us commandments, and we show our love of Him by actually keeping them. Yeah, that'll keep us in the faith also. Again, think of, think of Paul's words. Grounded, rooted, established, settled. Will we stay firm? I love that Jude, that Jude is emphasizing this during his period. Then, verse 22, And of some have compassion, making a difference, and others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garments spotted by the flesh. I mean, there's some strong conviction there. Hating sin, ooh, that's strongly worded, but not hating the sinner, right? We are being careful to respond to different people differently. And what's interesting here is some people you're going to have to save with fear. And is that your fear or theirs? Is that your reverence or are we talking actual fear? Or do we have to use strong language and help them see the consequences of their sins and almost scare them out of sin? Speaking justly would do that. Okay? Uh, Jacob said, or Enos said it was, it was that way in his day. Nothing else would work. Mormon said it was that way in his day because nothing else would work. So yeah, some you've got to save with fear. Some you have to pull out of the fire. 
because for some reason they're running headlong into disaster. We saw that in the book of Peter last week. It's like, no, I'm going to turn you away, you crash test dummy. I don't want you to, to run headlong into the brick wall. Instead, I'm going to pull you out of the fire. That's tricky because, yeah, I'm supposed to honor agency. But maybe in this instance, I'm going to have to err on the side of justice instead of erring on the side of mercy because I know where they're headed. So, no, in this, maybe I need to pull you away from the fire until you realize how much the flames will hurt you. And then you'll probably make better decisions in the future. We're talking spots in the flesh. We're talking stains on the garments. And you've got to come to a point where you can't stand any of that. Again, love sinner. But those sins, I don't want to have anything to do with them. But that puts in perspective what he said at the beginning of verse 22. Some people, though, hmm, you're going to have to make a difference. Because you have compassion. This is where we have to treat people on an individual basis. And honor rules, but also recognize exceptions. That for the most part, no, we're pulling people out of fire. We're hating sin. But there are those that, hmm, I have to make a difference out of compassion. I'm not trying to justify their iniquity. Far from it. Okay, I'm certainly not having them presume upon the Lord's grace. But to be a little more patient with them, to understand that this process is probably going to be a long one. And so with my compassion, I'm going to make a difference here because I see how hard they're trying, but also what they're up against. In essence, I'm going to grade on a curve, okay? Or I'm going to give different grades based on different work in my class because I know my students well enough to see who's meeting potential and who's falling short and who's struggling against bigger odds. Or I'm, these are judges in, in the diving competition and, the, and figure skating that they're taking degree of difficulty into consideration. It's like, yes, that diver made a bigger splash. But do you have any idea how hard that kind of dive was? So yes, I'm going to make a difference in this case. Compassion commands that I do. That's good parenting. That's good leading. Okay? That's good teaching. By the way, I was so intrigued by that phrase, having compassion, making a difference, that I looked it up in all these other translations to see if there was any nuance there. And these were three translations that really struck me. First, from the New International Version. Be merciful to those who doubt. Hmm, that's interesting. Or the New Living Translation. And you must show mercy to those whose faith is wavering. Or the Contemporary English Version. Be helpful to all who may have doubts. Hmm, that's what these translators saw in the Greek behind compassion and making a difference. It was doubt. It was wavering. It was struggling in the faith that needs to be earnestly contended for, but has come under attack. It's like, I know what you're up against. I know what these mockers do and how they make you feel. So if you're struggling, don't be ashamed. I will be merciful to you. In fact, I will help you be as helpful as I possibly can, because I get it too. We need to approach doubters in that way. Not as doubters, but people who are struggling with doubt, but are seeking truth so that they can hold to the faith that once was delivered by the saints. There's beautiful advice here. 
And in those, along those lines, in that light, Jude then concludes his letter with, with praise for the Lord he loves. The half-brother he didn't quite understand near, until near the end of his life. And it includes one of my favorite titles for Jesus I've ever heard. And the fact that it's coming from his younger half-sibling, I think, is just beautiful. It's a long one. Uh, it's one that Jesus wouldn't use very often, I'm sure, because it's just so long-winded. But you're going to need this many words to describe Jesus along these lines, especially in light of what we just saw about what we're up against. And seducers and deceivers, mockers, pulling us away, trying to trip us in our faith so that we fall. It's with that in mind that Jude gives his final oh, words of blessing and encouragement and gratitude and describes his older brother like this. Verse 24. Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, to the only wise God, our Savior, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and ever. Amen. Some people call that a doxology, when you're offering praise to God. And there's beautiful praise there. Only wise, give him glory. Give him majesty. He deserves it all. Grant him all the dominion and power that you could ask because he'll know what to do with it. And what will he do with it? He'll keep you from falling. That's the title I love so much. Who is Jesus to me? He's the one that can keep me from falling. He's the one that can help my children walk in truth. He's the one that will redeem them when they struggle and help support them whenever the, weak, the knees start to weaken and faith starts to fail. I am grateful for that Savior, for that Lord, the Lord of the creation, the Lord of the fall, and especially the Lord of the atonement. If you're worried, if you're starting to fall prey to the scoffers, Please come unto Christ and see in him the one who can keep you from falling. Now, with this, we only have the book of Revelation left. And we'll turn to that one next week. It is a fitting grand finale to the New Testament. It will bring us through the last days and off into the end of the world. Millennium, celestial kingdom, it's all there. Uh, the next three weeks are going to be glorious. I hope that you'll really think your way through them because there's some difficult symbolism. But I do love that Jude is what prepares us for that next step because Jude warns us of what we're up against, right? But I also love that the letters of John that we've studied, this week's lesson is such perfect preparation for next week's because it establishes us in the love of God. It warns us about the wicked world that we have to overcome. And that's a huge theme of the book of Revelation. But to hold to the love of God to get us through it. In fact, if I can do this uh, before we, we end, I got some interesting comments the last two weeks where they were like, whoa, 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 you finished Peter and you finished James, but you never went through the highlighted one-liners that we come, came to love from Paul. And I totally apologize for that. I had intended to do that for Paul, but it never crossed my mind to keep the streak alive. I didn't know you liked it so much. 
So for those of you who are actually able to endure to the end, and that in and of itself is amazing. You deserve any little gift I can give you. For you who are hanging on to the end and have been wanting that brief review of just no commentary, just one-liners, don't worry, the Spirit will bring to my remembrance the stuff that we learned about it. Well, I'm happy to renew the tradition and do that here for John, 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 Jude. So, by way of review, some beautiful one-liners. How's this for a list from these letters? God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Walk even as He walked. The true light now shineth. He that loveth his brother abideth in the light. Love not the world. The world passeth away, and the lust thereof. The same anointing teacheth you of all things. What manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us. Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be. When he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Marvel not if the world hate you. Let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. Try the spirits, whether they are of God. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Everyone that loveth is born of God, and knoweth God. God is love. As he is, so are we in this world. Perfect love casteth out fear. We love him because he first loved us. His commandments are not grievous. This is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. He that hath the Son hath life. I rejoiced greatly that I found of thy children walking in truth, that our joy may be full. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. Earnestly contend for the faith, building up yourselves on your most holy faith. And of some have compassion, making a difference. Him that is able to keep you from falling. That is the Lord of life. That is the Lord of love. And I love him because he first loved me. He loves you. And I pray you've been able to feel that as we've studied these words this week. I pray that the love of God has been made manifest so clearly that it is coaxing you out of the wicked world, that it is preserving you in Christ. Because what we're about to study in Revelation, what we're about to live through in the last days, will require all the strength, all the faith that we can muster. More importantly, it will require all the love of God. That is what overcomes the world. That is what prepares us for the last days. That is what brings us back to God. It's his love.